0: Greetings and all ladies and mental gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from, Tales Outer, from Outer, Space. Outer Space. In this episode we will be doing TFOS 1010 to 1023. And as always, I hope that you enjoy TALES from Outer Space one thousand and ten. Friends in Need. Written by IR Good at Writing. I was only a hatching when the black ships descended from the sky. At the time, I had no idea what was happening, being that young. To be fair, none of us really did. I don't remember my parents, or losing them for that matter. Maybe that's for the best. Neither do I recall the heavy footprints of the black ship's inhabitants above the claustrophobic crawlspace where I was hidden. Nor the scavengers digging me out of a smoking ruin. That was my home. They brought me into their flock and took me as their own to be honest it was more of a band of desperate refugees than a true flock we fled the invaders and their black ships adults taking turns carrying me months passed as we traveled through raised landscapes and past jagged husks of cities finding a stray survivor to join the flock here and there more often than not we only discovered a sad aftermath the invaders left behind. On unlucky days, a black ship would stumble upon the flock, hunting us down like mindless drones programmed to kill. I was too young to remember what they looked like, but the rare occasion they mentioned conjure up images of terror. My earliest memories was being carried into some vast underground tunnel, reaching over someone's shoulder towards the shrinking light of the exit. The smartest flock around the world realized living on the surface was possible. Optimists said the invaders weren't here to stay, that they would just take what they needed and leave one day. Now was it the case? We found caves, chasms, and grottoes hidden in the far corners of the world. Without looking back, we dug in. Days turned into years, and we went on I moulted my first feathers and entered adulthood. Life in the tunnels became routine, as much as people said that it was all temporary. Leaders were elected, living spaces were carved out of rock, occupants were assigned, and so on. Once, we even sent out an expedition to find out what was happening on the surface, and if more of us were out there. Future missions were cancelled after the first group never came back. Animosity towards the invaders only grew as time passed. I despised the black ships and what they did to us, but my discontent was nothing compared to the pure hatred the rest of the flock held for them. While I was tending the crops under the sunlamps, the other, older survivors never stopped talking about what it felt like to fly through the air. Wind on your wings, sun on your back. Some other times, they would aimlessly question why the black ships came to our planet, or why they were targeting us. Each time, spitting and cursing at the invaders. Every once in a while, they direct their anger towards me, demanding why I wasn't more upset at losing everything. But they didn't understand. What did I lose? I don't remember the surface. The thriving cities, the lush forests that they sing about. The dark caves were all I ever knew. I never even learned how to fly. One day, the flock went into a panic. A boom from somewhere, and the tunnels quaked and moaned in response. The tunnels settled back into their foundations after a few more moments. In an attempt to calm the survivors in the tunnel, the leaders dismissed the incident as a simple earthquake. That theory went down the drain when the booming continued into the night. Leaders gathered in secret and left the rest of the flock to stir and speculate over the sounds. The more paranoid members said the black ships had discovered the tunnels and were here to bury us. Some others nodded in assent. While well, most belligerent demanded we storm out with guns and drive them off by force. The leaders emerged from the den and announced their decision. The flock was to stay inside the tunnels until the booming stopped. Days came and went, the rumbling never quite coming to an end. Each time it happened, all of us hunkered down, expecting the tunnels to become our tombs. Once in a while, hours of silence would come to pass. Everyone thought that it was the last of it, until another crash would shatter our hopes. Whatever was going on had the flock rattled. The new routine was to stare at the stalactites on the ceiling, expecting them to fall down on our heads. Boredom filled the gaps between the booms. It gave us time to think, and that time allowed us to assume the worst. Whatever was causing the disturbance, it wasn't good. I'd never seen morale sink so low. People were coming to terms with their own mortality and finding peace with their deities. When all seemed to be lost, the crashing stopped. One moment the walls shook, then they didn't. Four days passed, without even a tremor. The leaders convened again, this time joining in a chaotic debate with the rest of the flock. Half the crowd wanted to investigate the surface, while the rest called for the survivors to shut themselves in even further. The entire scene was a time bomb. I could almost feel it about to explode into violence. There was a shrilling voice that cut through the air. "'Something's coming in from the surface!' The entry ran into the room and the tunnel exits. The flock was silent. People who were on the brink of knocking each other out were now staring at each other for answers. "'Invaders!' one of the leaders broke the silence. "'No, Your Honor,' the sentry said. "'Something different. They mean no harm.' "'How can you be sure? There are other flocks with them.' With that, there was a commotion from where the sentry came in. I pushed and shoved through the crowd until I could see what was happening. Members from other flocks entered the tunnel, looking at our pathetic little congregation with sympathetic eyes. Behind them came hulking beasts. Some little voice in my head told me that these were invaders from the black ships. Panic gripped my heart. It wasn't until I realized that the rest of the flock was watching with amazement and not fear that I realized my mistake. These newcomers had to crouch and waddle under the tunnel entrance, though the top was twice my height. They were some kind of bipedal mammal, encased in thick exoskeletons that made them even more intimidating. Each one casually held a gun the size of a small artillery piece. The last one that came in didn't have a massive weapon, our armor. Who are you? One of the leaders butted through the crowd and asked the newcomer with caution. I am General Ayan Patel of the Interstellar Indian Republic, part of the Coalition of Mankind. The unarmed human said a stepped forward. He took a long, expressionless look at our squalid living conditions before turning to our leaders. Perhaps you would like to go to the surface? The sun was a lot brighter than I thought it would be. After the rest of the flock went to bed, I'd spend hours staring at the pictures, imagining what it would be like to actually stand under it. I was disappointed to find out it actually hurt to look at it, though it was slight relief to see that the rest of the flock shielding the eyes as much as me. My eyes adjusted revealing a valley of blackened with ash and dotted with deep blast craters. Black ships lay scattered across the land, splintered into smoldering wrecks. Monstrous shapes were strewn about the valley, so terrible that I couldn't even classify what kind of animal they were. It's not like I needed to. The flock's reaction told me all I needed to know. The general sensed our apprehension. Don't worry. There shouldn't be any trouble to you anymore. Our leaders looked as shaken as the rest of us. The invaders, one of them said. What did they want? Why didn't they come here? Questions I wish I had answers to, the general shook said, I can only imagine what you people went through. But it's over now. What do we do now? I didn't realize I spoke until the words had already come out. We're rebuilding the cities across the world, trying to reconnect people with missing loved ones and go back to the way things were. But I'm not sure the last one is possible. After you all gather your belongings and whoever stayed down in the caves, we can shuttle you to the nearest landing pad. From there, it's up to you where to head next. But we'll help you every step of the way. What do you have to gain from helping us? The general paused, staring at the ground in thought. Fine," he sparked, Nothing. We're just helping friends in need. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1011 Story number one. Outpost 2246, written by Echoing Cascade. Day three. Ramirez was checking the ammo racks and the auto-turrets that defended the outpost. The screens read 70%. Their attacks consumed 30% of the ammo currently fed to the turrets. I'd better double the amount just to be on the safe side. He had crash-landed after being shot out of the sky by enemy forces. He, Carl, Norman, and Sarge were on the routine rearming run for an automated defense on an isolated outpost, and that was supposed to be a peaceful planet. I remember the fire. I had to carry three ammo boxes. They were some of the heaviest things I ever had to pull. Turns out that Strady had other ideas, and now his four-man team was going to have to survive long enough for reinforcements to check upon them. The communication array on the side was fried, and since this was one of five outposts, they weren't due to return to base for two more weeks. Sarge assured them that they wouldn't be checked on for another 18 days. On the other hand, they had enough ammo for five outposts. I should check on Gala. She should be in her sniping nest, taking out any stretty, trying to damage the turrets from the outside their range. Sure enough, the sound of gunfire could be heard. Aim, fire, reload. Aim, fire, reload. Ramirez couldn't help but smile. She was the only sniper in the graduating class to use an old school bolt action rifle. She gave him a quick wave without bothering to turn to look at him. He decided to go check in the kitchen. Norman was cooking his favours webos and rancheros. Ramirez tried to take some and got a spatula to the hand for his troubles. Finally, he reported to Sarge who was tending the garden. He never liked the garden. Too many bugs. Ramirez. Ammo is refilled on the turrets, Carla is sniping fools, and Norman is making sure we regret the lack of standard rations on third day in a row. Sarge. (laughs) Ha! You want to talk? You can live on that stuff. Very well, go get some rest. We're going to have to do this whole crap again tomorrow. Day 8 Ramirez was checking on the ammo racks and the auto-turrets that defended the outpost. The screens read 92%. Their attack consumed 8% of the ammo currently fed to the turrets. This amount should be good enough for now. I should check on Sarge. He should be in his sniping nest, taking out any stranny trying to damage the turrets from the outside their range. Sure enough. The sound of gunfire could be heard. Aim. Fire. Reload. Aim. Fire. Reload. Ramirez couldn't help but smile. Sarge was the only sniper in the graduating class to use an old-school bolt-action rifle. He gave him a quick wave without bothering to turn to look at him. He decided to go check on the kitchen. Norman was cooking his famous huevos and rancheros. Ramirez tried to take some and got a spatula to the hand for his trouble. Finally, he checked on Carla, who was tending the garden. He never liked the garden. Too many bugs. Ramirez. Come on, Carla. Dinner is almost up. The the huevos rancheros again. Carla. Oh, please. Everyone knows that you could live off that stuff. Alright, let's go. Day 15. Ramirez was in his sniping nest, taking out any strally, trying to damage the turrets from outside their range. Aim. Fire. Reload. Aim. Fire. Reload. Ramirez couldn't help but smile. He was the only sniper of the graduating class to use an old-school bolt-action rifle. A souvenir from his great-great-grandpa. I hope Sarge is making his famous huevos rancheros. I could live on that stuff. Day 19 Ramirez was cooking like usual when he heard the sound of heavy artillery. Feck! Did the Strelly really get reinforcements? He ran to mission briefing room. It gave access to all surveillance equipment and doubled as a panic room for a final last stand. When he got there, Carla was hugging Norman while Sarge was pointing at the mission screen. Reinforcements had indeed arrived, but it was theirs. Before he could say anything or move, he heard the sound of boots in the corridor. A major and his escort were making their way to the room. Ramirez snapped a crisp salute, and he assumed so did the others, and he turned his back to them to face the officer. Major, at ease, soldier. You lot did a fine job holding the line for so long. The Major looked around for a moment. Major, where are all the others? At this, Ramirez's blood ran cold, and he tried to forget. He had tried to move on, but he knew. He knew what had happened. He took a deep breath, and he began to talk. Ramirez, we um, we were shot down almost three weeks ago. Carla, Sergeant Norman, uh... Didn't make it. I pulled their bodies from the fire, but uh, it was too late. They, um, they are buried uh, in the garden. The Major looked at the soldier, still saluting, barely holding back tears. Major. Son, are you saying you held the outpost alone for nineteen days? Ramirez looked behind him at the conference table and saw no one. He then recalled all he had done in the last nineteen days. How his friends' memories and everything they had taught him kept him going. He then learned to face the Major. Ramirez. Not alone, sir. I was never alone. End of story. Story number two. Matador, written by Harfus. Enrico Noz stepped into the ring. The crowd was smaller every time. Barely a quarter of the arena is seated aliens of all kinds either old fans or a sparse few who wanted to see a real matador and possibly their last chance to do so sure the crowd was small but it roared with the strength that filled the arena enrico pulled out a cane a thick shade of pink that shares the color of his home a rose colony with a flourish he bows And whipped the cape up so that it became his billowing mane. For a sparse few moments, he walked slowly to the center of the arena. He puffed his chest out and held himself tall. Me all love to cock. That's why the crowd is here. Half of them wonder if this will be Enrico's unexpected last show. He's getting older, turning forty in a few months. Surely he can't go on much longer. Four months ago, Al Mekwino died, and it was literally a machine with a personality, of course. Most others have either quit or died. A few non-humans that tried quickly gave up. This was a distinctly human sport. Enrico saw himself on that large screen. He spotted the camera and stared into it with his piercing eyes, dragging a hand slowly through his grey, flecked hair. It was time... The gate dropped and the bull came free. Real bulls were long since replaced. This was only a mock-up. It bent its head back, snorted, and dragged one hoof across the ground, stirring up dust. All program. Enrico sighed. The beast charged forward, pistons slamming into the ground as it neared him. With a spin, Enrico stepped out of the way. This had no heart to them. All standardized. All the same strength. What he wouldn't give for a fair fight. He held his famous stone-cold face, all for the show. And they danced. Enrico dodged each charge masterfully. Enrico had a plan. On the bull's charge, it slowed right before it would impact, giving Enrico the time to react and make a show of it. Nothing but a trained eye could tell they was different. But he knew the crowd feels it. They feel how fake it is. Last night, Enrico was hunched over his computer, learning about the circuitry of the bull. He knew a showmaster edited the AI, made it so that it wouldn't kill anyone important. Made it so that there was no real danger. The signals were transmitted to a receiver in the tail, and if he were to cut the tail, the repurposed military AI would have full control. So he did. During the slowdown, Enrico quickly drew his blade, grabbed the tail, and cut it off, severing the internal safety net. The bull roared and immediately kicked him. He was knocked back. Enrico tried to jump so he would fly further. The entire crowd gasped. The arena was silent until he stood up and spun his flag again. And he threw the tail into the air as he did so. The camera zoomed in on it as it went into the air all the way to the peak of its flight arc. He looked briefly at the technician's box. They were standing up, shouting at each other, panicking. None of them are human. They wouldn't understand. For the first fight in ten years, Enrico smiled. His ribs hurt and he'd need to visit a hospital after this. But now was not the time to worry about that. Now was the time for a true show. To begin the bull charged him. he stepped away earlier than usual and the beast's horns hooked his coat tearing it that was close closer than he expected he put his blade away and danced again he placed traditional hooked flags into his broad shoulders with the bull coming just as close every pass normally assistants would do the step but there were none left willing to show he holds the cape out the beast bleeding synthetic blood as it charged through. He dragged the cape directly over its head as it moved. Normally, the bulls would simply charge under the flag, inhibited from the moving too fast. This bull charged so fast that it left the flag waving in the wind from its pass. They continued to dance, Enrico moving with energy the crowd hadn't seen in so long, that the arena hadn't seen in so long. When Enrico brought his sword out, the final stage of the fight, he finally noticed the crowd. These cheers were like none other. The beast was weakened, tired and bleeding. The kill was quick, and the bull died as the sword pierced its spine. Enrico looked at the crowd, smiled, and bowed. He knew he was going to do this every time. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1012 A Name for Humanity Written by Al Sporner So, I've come to tell you a story of humans and the Great War. Yes, it's not a new thing, but indulge your old Coyote sublord, for it is a tale that'll hold long in our family. We call them humans, for that is the name that they have chosen for themselves. But I think it is a bad name. Kait, of course, means delicate ones, for we have always prided ourselves on our fair constitution and beautiful nature. The Satish, whom I'll speak more on, damn them to the Abyss, call themselves that because it meant strength. In essence, every species has a name that also describes them in some fashion. Humans, meanwhile, means nothing as a description. But, as it so happens, there is a human word which describes them properly. It is a multi-purpose word that can mean baiting, grave insult, enthusiasm, or just plain insanity. Feck. And so, I've taken to calling them the fecks. Or, more appropriately, the up. Strangely, the humans I've met personally embrace the term. They find it some sort of bizarre amusement. In it. Anyway, m- rambling. Let's discuss where these beings came from. Earth, as everybody knows, is a death world. There are many such worlds in the galaxy where a combination of high gravity and competitive evolution have resulted in entire ecosystems that would destroy any creature not adequately prepared by natural selection to survive there. Now, contrary to popular belief, Sentient species evolve in death worlds all the time. Intelligence is one way creatures adapt to such environments. However, such sentient species invariably annihilate themselves before achieving the gravity drive and FTL travel. The competitive nature of death world means that the one species reaches a nuclear age. It usually results in the death world becoming a dead world. The galaxy is littered with them. Only compassionate and cooperative sentience had managed to survive long enough to discover a gravity drive, for the research and development for this technology consumes hundreds of thousands of cycles for most species. And so we were aware of the humans, but dismissed them as another species waited to destroy itself. The Satish used the worship of a deity they called the Laughing God, for they were convinced that the creator who was a god who invented the universe as some kind of joke that lesser species were just too damned primitive to get. I could almost believe that, for the humans discovered the gravity drive by accident. One of the odds, right? They had been playing with spaceflight in their local system for some time, and we took little notice of this. Nobody had yet escaped their home system without a gravity drive. For otherwise, energy requirements were prohibitive. But a group of human engineers playing around with some concepts they didn't fully understand. I'm told that humans often do this, even though the results are frequently deadly. Anyway, they nearly kill themselves in doing so. But they stumble upon a technology they should not have had access to for centuries. The Council of Sentients descended into absolute chaos. No Death World species had ever been unleashed upon the universe. My father, Sub-Lord Thun, argued that the best cost was to send a peace delegation to the humans, and just try to live with the situation. Everyone thought that he was insane. The Justicar of the Evol suggested that we flee the galaxy. That was taken a bit more seriously. But to the ruin of us all... It was the Shetish who prevailed in the debate. The Satish were the most violent and paranoid of sentient races who achieved the gravity drive. They were nowhere near as bad as the Vex or uh, humans, and their world was a paradise compared to Earth. But nonetheless, they were most akin to humanity in our council. They voted to commit genocide, to wipe out the humans before it was too late. Even the Yval decided to go along with it. My father cast a lone dissenting vote at the end, for which I and all the other Kait are forever grateful. It was the only reason humanity was merciful to us. A massive building program ensued, with us Kayit providing the hulls and engines, the Yval providing provisions and fuels, and the Satish providing the bulk of the weapons and soldiers. No one else even properly understood war. My father led the Qayyit and Yavul congregants, and the fleet set course for Earth. Three billion Satish warriors were in the cargo ships following the main body, and the armada itself consisted of over 4,000 capital-class warships. No such fleet had ever been assembled in the Council's history. Now, the gravity drive does have one downside. You cannot drop out of FTL too close to a large gravity well, like a star. And so we exited the hyperband just outside the orbit of the planet that they called Neptune. The humans soon detected our presence and panicked transmissions crossed the system. It took nearly a month to make the sublight journey in system. Sublord Than once said that we should have come with only a few warships, and maybe the humans would have taken by surprise. Thinking as peaceful envoys. I'm not sure about that, but the humans certainly understood what 4,000 warships meant. Invasion. They didn't waste a single minute of that month, busy little fix that they were. By the time we approached Earth, weapons and placements and satellites ringed the system, and we were greeted by over 10,000 nuclear missiles. Our point defenses were overwhelmed and many warships were destroyed right there. So many railgun rounds, laser strikes, and old-fashioned chemical warheads flooded forth from the planet that it looked like the Earth animal called a porcupine. The battle seesawed back and forth, but finally we managed to clear the orbits and destroyed most of the ground-based emplacements. It cost us more than half our fleet to do this. At this point, the Satish still wanted to capture the planet more or less intact. So it could be mined of resources to pay for the cost of the expedition. And so, three billion Satish warriors landed at various places around the planet. They were utterly annihilated. The Satish could not even have guessed just how good humans were at killing. Did you know that they keep domesticated apex pack predators called the Dog... As a pet, many Satish weren't even killed by humans. They were killed by their pets. Most humans were armed with melee weapons, guns, homemade bombs, and other makeshift weapons. They were impossibly strong and fast, and had exceptional endurance. And they were devious. Elements of their military had hidden strength and form of aerospace fighters, nuclear mines, and other nasty surprises. Three billion Satish died in one week. The humans captured a few, but even those eventually went insane from the fear and stress. The Satish didn't take this lightly. They ordered an immediate nuclear bombardment of the planet. Finances be damned. Nearly a billion humans died in the orbital reprisals. Any sane species would have given up at that point. But not the humans. In deep underground bunkers, there had been studying our technology, building new weapons and ships. And a month after the initial invasion, a haphazard armada of little fighter craft armed with nukes made its way from the surface in a last desperate attack. Our fleets, already damaged and demoralized, just couldn't take it. It was a complete rout and only my father's contingent of kayak ships managed to hold on to any semblance of order. The cost of the expedition had indeed proven ruinous. The Council could not manage it again. Meanwhile, the humans analyzed our wrecked ships and began producing their own variants in record time. We still thought we had an edge because of our numbers and factories, and because of how badly Earth had been damaged in the assault. We were wrong. Today, you will not find any living satish. The last survivors were tossed onto a distant planet with no technology and few resources. Whether or not the Laughing God found that funny, we will never know. The rest were slaughtered. The Yvalm got their wish in a twisted fashion and were exiled from the galaxy. As Human Admiral later said, We've them all up. The fix, indeed. Only us Ka'it were permitted to stay and keep our worlds, for the humans found our records of the Council's debate and my father's plead to avoid war with them. And, at any event, the humans found truth in our name, for we are delicate and beautiful, and they have a sort of admiration for us in that respect. We look enough like them, though lack their strong constitution, that some have even considered fecking us. But a human general summed it up best when he said that it was never any fun killing a kite, because it was just too damned easy. We believe him. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1013 Story number one. Warmth, written by O'Gosh. We, the esteemed and favored Ascalad, first children of the Suns, writers of our own destiny, and masters of the self. We knew that our adventure into the great expanse of space would lead us to discover life. At its discovery, we would be changed. It was a sacred pact that we formed with ourselves, and no matter what strange sentience may confront us, the code of selfless would not be infringed. It was, after all, the code that made us strong. To stand apart, we thrive together. The strong individual brings power to the whole, and the weak fade, having sacrificed themselves to maintain the strength of the whole. By this law, the Askeladd seized the stars and stood together in the heavens, divided. Then the many philosophers ponder that strange nature of the humans. Our first encounter with the sentient, extraterrestrial life was with these soft-skinned creatures. Like us. They possessed two arms and one head with two eyes. Unlike us, they walked on two lower appendages that resembled flat hands and stubby fingers. We told them that they looked like our cave, Skavai, from our homeworld. They said that we resembled lamias of theirs. I should one day wish to encounter one of these lamias, but I digress. Our interest in humanity waned almost immediately, however... Our technology eclipsed theirs, and the planets that they chose to colonize were either too cold for the Askeladd standards or too large. For decades, we watched humanity slow crawl out of their home system with a mixture of tempered curiosity and neglect. Our communications were short, irritatingly frequent, and almost always initiated by them. Like hatchlings, they sought to learn as much as they could from us as possible. Their curiosity would be endearing if it were not so tiring. One particular message that would appear with vexing regularity always came after we deigned to allow a human to witness our sacred ritual of softness. They used a word that we had no direct translation of. Apathetic. It would not be until after the Glashful 7 incident that we would learn what an insult it was. No. Insult is the wrong word. A harsh lesson that we were not prepared to learn. Gashol-7 is a harsh and cold planet inside humanity's domain. Of course, they colonized it. When in the intersystem transport shuttle Ictarius suffered a debilitating hull breach and was forced out of hyperspace, it found itself caught in the planet's gravity well and was sent plunging into the expansive boreal forest on the planet's surface. Between the breach and the crash landing, 870 of the 925 Askeladd board perished. By the code of selfness, there would be no attempt to retrieve them from their fate. The survivors would struggle for their own salvation. Should any individual survive, they would return as champions of their own race, exalted and revered. 19 more died of exposure before the humans arrived. The humans' first responders to the crash site had never heard of the code, though, as we would learn, they would have ignored it anyway. They came with food and medical supplies, blankets and shelters. When they discovered our bodies did not produce its own warmth, they embraced the survivors and kept them warm by sharing their own body heat. These humans, living on a lonely little rock with so few supplies, light years away from their home planets, opened their homes, coffers, and pantries to the Ascalad without a moment's hesitation. It was perplexing. It was us that had questions for the humanity after that. The humans shared with us the code of their race. Again, it was a word with no translation. Empathy. They called it the Golden Rule, a name we found more agreeable. According to them, it meant... To act towards others in a way that you'd wish to be treated. While we found power in division, humanity found power in their unity. We were fools, not only in our unwillingness to learn from them, but in our refusal to allow our code to be questioned. The code of selfness was guiding our people for millennia, and has made us strong. We shall not forget what it has taught us, but it is also... Outdated. We, the esteemed and favored Askelyde, first children of the suns, writer of our own destiny and masters of self, shall from this day forward learn and grow with the assistance of the gentle and welcoming humanity. First children of harmony, masters of empathy, embraces of the apathetic. End of story. Story number 2. The Pen and the Sword, written by Damascus Seraph The pen is certainly mightier than the sword. For millennia, the galactic community warfare has transcended barbaric conflict of arms and slowly morphed into a battle of wits, minds, and most importantly, economics. With each state trying to outdo others economically and ruin others financially, Armadas became a trade fleet, great legions of bureaucrats became the soldiers, CEOs the generals, bankers the armouries, and often the winner wasn't clear until one or the other had financially collapsed. It was a civilized way of doing things, and there were two great powers amongst the galaxy. The Cornean Traders Coalition, a massive mega corporation that surpassed the smaller states it had operated in until absorbing them in ruthless acquisitions, now spreading their branch offices and franchises across the galaxy. And the Bank of Troma, the greatest financial institution in the galaxy, controlling a third of all financial transactions and storing nearly half the galaxy's antimatter, usually neutral in financial conflicts, often funding both sides to a conflict to entrap either side in debt, no matter the winner. These two great financial powerhouses typically stayed out of each other's way, lest the entire economy collapse from their conflict. And a fragile Cold War that has lasted for a millennia has broken with the exploration of a final arm of the Milky Way, discovering the Terran Republic. An oddity in the galaxy as republics were either too fragile to last any economic war and strife, or too busy with internal politics that they fell apart and were absorbed by their neighbors. Yet here is a great third power controlling nearly an entire arm of the galaxy. Two other powers looked at this new fresh ground for profit directly in the middle of the previously agreed split of the galaxy's economies. The Ghanaians were the first to attempt to tap into this untapped market, constructing dozens of franchises and knockoff corporations, only to find their products not selling, and dozens of franchises being closed for violating dozens of labor laws and building codes. Having their assets sold off to paid legal fees that droned on for years as the Terran government heaped fine after fine on the various dubiously associated companies. The galaxy watched in horror as the Terrans had practically declared all out war on the Conians. The bank, of Troma stepped back cancelling their planned expansion upon seeing the hostility shown by these Terrans. The Terrans are obviously thinking themselves big shots, and squaring up against one of the largest institutions in the galaxy to make their claim. Let them fight, the bank will always be ready to swoop in to finance either side, should they show signs of collapse. Having a great power in your debt would cement their place at the top the first battle of the war came a few years later after the lawsuits finished and new more legal companies were established and began to buy stock in various terran corporations prices skyrocket as all conian franchise companies began purchasing every stock there is even the most worthless stock imaginable a basic tactic everyone was surprised was working against the terrans Surely, a supposed third superpower would have been easily able to prevent this. By the time the prices began to reach peak, all the stock was bought up and immediately dumped by the franchise companies, crashing everything within days, as former million credit stocks became worthless. Surely, this would ruin the economy of the Terrans, allowing the Kanians to claim victory. The Knians publicly claimed the war won owning the collapse on the Terran economy as another badge of pride on their wall, and waited for the Terran envoys to come begging. The galaxy looked on, awaiting the response, as the Terran's declaration of war came shortly after they cut communication with the rest of the galaxy. How naive! The war was won already. The economy was in ruins, all funds drained out of the Terran space, and there was nothing that they could do. The Connians began losing their patience with the Terrans as this silence dragged on. They lost, why wouldn't they admit it so that they can be funded by Connian companies and become another subsidiary like all the rest? But finally, news arrived of a great trade fleet arriving in Connian territory bordering the Terrans. Finally, perhaps this was a great tribute of their rudeness and naivety. The Carnian board of directors waited in anticipation of the great wealth that would line their pockets once the fleet arrives. Talks of building a 93rd villa and buying another luxury space cruise liner filled the boardroom until the hologram opened up with an emergency message. The Terran's great tribute fleet was not a tribute fleet. It was a war fleet. Video of battleships shredding the trade stations over Volnium-5 as small ships landed on the planet deploying armed soldiers. The galactic net suddenly burst into frenzy of thousands of recordings. News outlets, pictures, and pleas for help filled every message board, with Terran soldiers capturing cities without a fight armed with weapons. Fleets jumping into systems and annihilating any ship who didn't immediately land on the planet had surrendered. The galaxy stood in shock and horror as the Terran marched through the Conian space side opposed. What few Conian security forces that had weapons were no match for the frigates and cruisers of the Terran navy. World after world fell. Subsidiary nations threw off the Conian yoke and pledged their allegiance to the Terrans as the fleet spread out through space. The border directors were in absolute shock and horror. This wasn't how things were meant to go. These barbaric Terrans were destroying valuable property and illegally taking planets by force like bandits. They were only two light years away from the capital. Who knows what they'll do if they get their claws on them. When the first Terran fleet arrives in the Konyan capital system, they find a fleet of ships evacuating the planet. Dozens of cruise liners carrying rich executives were unceremoniously destroyed, as they attempted to escape rather than surrender. The hundreds of ships attempting to take all the wealth from the planet somewhere else were forced to land and have their cargo seized. By the end of the month, the entire former Conian traders' coalition was annexed by the Terran Republic. Assets seized by the federal government until new corporations can emerge from the ashes. Private Terran companies who was somewhat unaffected by the collapse of the economy spread out into newly annexed territories. And, with subsidies from the newly enriched Federal Government of Terra, new non-Codian monopoly companies emerged on planets all over. The other half of the galaxy, and the Great Bank of Troma, watched in shock and horror as the war did such a drastic turn. What millions of highly educated investors, CEOs, and bankers could not do in so long, these gun-wielding Terrans did in a month by simply shooting the competition. The banker of Troma CEO sent a large low-interest loans to the Troma Arms Industry and in shipyards, as they began preparing their defense against the inevitable new type of war that these Terrans brought. For the galaxy realized so suddenly what good is a pen when you have no sword to defend it. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1014 Dying of Boredom, written by Graith. Death had existed, as his best estimate, for 13.82 billion solar years. He had sprung into being roughly one septillionth of a second after the first expanse began in the Great Singularity, from which this universe was derived. At least, he thought so. He thought that was when he had been born, based on the science that he'd seen discovered on countless worlds over billions of years across the universe, that seemed, at least to his comprehension, to be simultaneously finite and incomprehensibly infinite, all at once. Their science suggested that somewhere in the first subtillionth of a second, The first units of matter had coalesced, and in some cases, broken down. And it seemed to him reasonable to assume that his proto-self would have been there present for the destruction of proto-life. Or at least, its very first building blocks. And so he reasonably concluded that he was in fact 13.82 billion years old. He did not know when he first started to be, exactly, At least he didn't know the details. It had taken ages upon ages of existence for his immaterial, unspecific self to coalesce into something remotely similar to consciousness. His first ever semi-conscious memory involved being present at the deaths of almost incalculably many forms of almost life. The very first experience of biogenesis experienced in the great wide universe and he had felt what he later identified to be a feeling of joy and fascination at these first attempts. However, many hundreds of billions were unsuccessful before the first living form of chemical matter ever managed to live beyond a few minutes. Sadly, it had died shortly thereafter, which, of course, was the reason for his presence at the event. But nonetheless, the chemicals had been doing a good job, working very hard, and had very nearly managed to create life, which death, even in this ancient, semi-conscious state of being, seemed to think was an all-round good idea on the chemicals part. Still, he hadn't been truly conscious until life had succeeded. Sustaining itself in a few locations in the universe were long enough to develop true life cycles, true cellular structure, true reproduction. And at this time, as if a final puzzle piece had finally been settled into place and completed the puzzle. Death, as a true being, had sunk into his position amongst the infinite planets and stars, and become an aware being. A few billion years after that, and yet still several billion years before now, Death had spent some time considering these first and earliest recollections, and attempting to sort out his own creation and his understanding of self. He had arrived at a wealth of exciting conclusions none of which explained in any detail how he had come to be why he had come to be what his purpose was or anything of that sort of which he was very proud and took great joy and understanding the first realization he had enjoyed was when his thoughts had uncovered the fact that the now living things treated him specifically Amongst those forms of life that exhibited both sapience and gender systems, he was generally referred to as whatever was closest analog to male, and he felt that this was fine and good. He discovered that he found strange delight in knowing that he either did or didn't have a gender, instead of simply not knowing. And while he had no real reason to particularly care one way or another, he enjoyed that he had an answer to an unasked for question. He had no genetics, no building blocks of solid body for which a sex or gender could be defined. But the notion of such a thing was pleasing nonetheless. The second realization he had come upon when reflecting over his first memories was that death, the concept, not him, death, capital D, and all the associated baggage was a surprisingly fluid concept amongst living creatures. For example, a being might die and then be brought back by all sorts of things. Some creatures needed right chemicals to turn on again, others might revert to larval younger stages, and die as adults while their bodies as a whole continued on. Others, like one of his favorite species to watch, humans, they tended to die fairly definitively, but could in some cases come back if the right chemicals or energy, or even motions were applied. Still, even dead, they were filled with a teeming mass of life in their bodies. So while the human might die, many other pieces of what was a human were still alive. And that, in the end, was the realization. Death can be broken into shades of meaning. A body could die, a brain can die, a cell can die. But only when the unit as a whole died, did death seem to have meaning, at least to sapient creatures. The third and final realization he had was that he was very, very bored. It might sound strange, but death had first not really existed at all, then existed as a being in a semi-conscious state, and finally in a conscious state. Yet never in the transition or process had he ever been told what he was to do or why to do it. He'd just done it splitting some fashion or another all around the universe to witness the death of its life. Despite what many species thought, he didn't cause death. He was just there to witness it, and he did so with a solemn feeling of duty and purpose. Still, he was bored by much of this, and felt, understandably, like he knew all he needed to know. He was, only now, considering the bigger, deeper question of why and who am I, and all the other nonsensical questions sapient beings have a tendency to ask themselves. And just as certainly as nearly every sapient being before him has failed to find a good answer, he failed too. And while these questions occupied his mind for a time, it wasn't long before he felt very bored all over again, and he thought idly to himself as his pervasive presence thrived throughout the universe. Present active, and bored. And so, he persisted, and watched, and existed all around the universe in all sorts of different shades and levels, for ages and ages more, feeling a little bit sorry for himself, and wishing very much that there was something more that he could do, learn, and understand, if only to entertain him for a little while. As time marched on, he witnessed great things that often alleviated his negative feeling for at least a little while. He saw civilizations harness the energy of whole stars, whole systems, and create fabulous creations that prolonged life nearly indefinitely. He saw many and more civilizations retreat into computer systems, subsuming their technically real life for preparation of life in a computer. He saw far far more sapient species rise up, fail to breach the stars, and die to any number of terrible events, from planetary destruction to collective suicide. And seeing all of these things, he felt that he understood more and more, and his mind became wide, vast, powerful, and knowing, well, uh, wide, vast, powerful, knowing, and unbelievably and incomparably bored. There were moments, however, when he found ways to entertain himself. Some deaths, however, tragic and solemn, were quite amusing. Death by ignited flatulence was one of his personal favorite methods to see a creature die. And when a strange chemical reaction resulted in an entire planet being destroyed by a single blast set off by an incendiary reaction in one being's flatulence, he was entertained for weeks and weeks at the thought when one planet died because they thought that they could make the molten core of their planet into an energy source, and unintentionally created a mass of volcanic eruptions that looked like a planet-wide fireworks. Death was so amused. He watched each and every creature's death with a feeling of pity and satisfaction, warring for dominance in his heart. Or, well, his mind, but heart was how he thought of it, so for some illogical reason. In any case, he had ways to avoid boredom, at least briefly, and he had recently, in the last few thousand years, started to rely on one species in particular to brighten his mood. When flitting through time and space to watch the death of all life in some form or another became too much of a burden, it was a species that he both enjoyed and pitied, even more than he pitied himself. More than either feeling, though, he felt a great deal of appreciation for them, because they proved to him that however long that he had lived and existed, he was still capable of being pleasantly surprised. Humanity, a species that was born long after the great species had conquered the whole galaxies, and who struggled unusually hard to survive, gave him that surprise. He saw them almost succumb to disease and wolves and a few near misses of asteroids and meteors, though luckily these were during a time period that humanity was not yet evolved enough to know how scary those bright flighty streaks above them really might be. And perhaps because of their struggles and near disasters, the species had begun to treat him with a strange reverence. He existed in their books. He was a character on the TVs, He was a force in their lives, and they understood, respected, and sometimes even celebrated. All of this was shocking to him. Death being celebrated was unique. In all the universe that he'd seen, he had watched every pattern imaginable play out a hundred or a thousand or even a billion times. He saw a life that feared death, hated it, raged against it, fought it. He saw that it haunted their dreams, that their death presence defined their lives far more than anything else they encountered. Life feared death. And this, admittedly, much of mankind did too. For what made them unique was the perspective they had been born from their pain, from their sorrows, and their unusual capacity for grief. What made them unique was how they could see death as a tragedy and a beautiful release all at once. They could fear death and welcome it as the end of a struggle all at once. As death sat immaterial and therefore invisible by the bedside of an old woman, he let his mind wander. Here he was again, to witness another death. Despite his nearly infinite mind, intelligence, experience, he still wasn't entirely sure why. Nonetheless, he paid attention and waited for the moment when this woman would cease to be and begin to have been. He saw the nearness of it in her. Her breathing, Michelle. Her lungs fluid filled, so her breathing rasped and crackled. Still audible, even over the beeping monitor that measured her thready pulse. And though she could not feel it, and though she did not know it, Death sat with her and witnessed her go. She took a last breath. The chemicals in her brain surged, giving her a last flash of thought, a last gasping desperate reach for life, for awareness, for cognizance. And then she was no more. And there sat Death, still waiting, as a nurse and a doctor came in, the doctor signing her charge to denote the time of death. It had been the monitor's solid tone that had called him in, and with the woman's condition so poor, he was strangely glad to see her pass. Soon after, the doctor headed back out, leaving only the corpse and the nurse in the room together, as well as the death's presence. If it could be caught that, lingering in the chair beside the bed. The nurse looked somber, but not sad, She attended the body, removing needles and little connector pads from the skin, tidying up the body as it released waste and settled into a state of non-living. And Death noted, with a strange uplifting thought, that the nurse also held the dead woman's hand one last time and whispered gentle words into her unhearing ears. With that, Death left his presence slip away and fell it across the universe to somewhere else, where another sapient being passed into non-being, with the same quiet sounds of death, with its own species doctors coming to note the occurrence. But unlike humanity, with no sense of relief, release, and comfort. Maybe that was why he had begun to rely on humanity. Maybe that small difference was the reason the deaths of humans had such a weight on his heart. Because their deaths were not the end of a fight the failure to fight for life and survival. But rather, the deaths were so often such tragic releases, acceptance of the end and a celebration of the life lived. Instead of mourning for the life that could have been in a vast universe, the different views of death were so varied that it would take aeons to even describe the different views of death. But in all of his experience, all his knowledge, and all that he had seen... Death himself had never been quite as touched to see a creature die as he was when a human died, and their end was celebrated as joy instead of tragedy. He flitted from world to world, galaxy to galaxy, his consciousness existing in millions upon millions of places at once, and he waited for the next human to die, not a failure to keep living, but as a treasure, a peace. Granted to bring them comfort At the very end End of story Tales from Outer Space 1015 Story number one Starstruck Madness Written by underscore underscore T-E underscore underscore Stars vibrate And pulse and tremble And these movements produce Sound, immense sounds Sounds able to shatter planets With their volume but sweeter than anything. Fortunately, the vacuum veil of space protects us from the sounds and conceals their meaning. Or did. Stellar seismologists first began translating the surface-like changes of the star into crude replications of sounds in the late 90s, with the first real success in 2010. Even then, it could have ended as an amusing footnote in our study of the stars. The hissing and popping simulcra of something almost but not quite musical coming from the stars. But a statistical linguist with access to more computing power than sense decided to try an automated deciphering of the song. He got more pattern-matched than he expected, but it was still nonsense. It still could have stopped there. While he was wandering through online tech rags, however, he came across a discussion of deciphering code actively from the noises made by a CPU and some of the patterns had looked an awful lot like what he had seen. Were the star's computers? They weren't, of course, but digging into those methodologies, he found a way to run his statistical processing against the actual processors making the noise, and he got more pattern matching, a lot more. We don't know exactly what message he found when he first read the thoughts of our son, He didn't save it before he turned off his computer, walked to his safe, drew out a gun, and shot himself in the face. But we did find his research notes on how to do it. The first researchers to follow his work were a lot more cautious. They ran translations that were deliberately flawed, first into one language and then their own before reading. And they read them in small doses, with therapy sessions and group discussions before continuing. The sun was madness. It spewed physics changing insights alongside madness and juicing poetry. And while it slowly became obvious the star was attempting to communicate with us, the implementation of that communication seemed to involve sending everything it thought about a topic at once. We couldn't pass it, we couldn't even look at it too closely without losing our minds. But our computers could we reached a point where we could read the metadata about the content sent by the sun. And based on mythological reference, we renamed the star to a close-ish hybrid analogue, Sol Tiamat. She was essentially a god, for our purposes, although one with more in common with the Cthulhu Mythos than anything our ancestors truly understood. The problem was that Sol Tiamat possessed ethics. Most stars spent millions of years hacking each other, trying to wipe out the current mind and write a copy of their own mind into it. A mirrored ally in a star-eat-star mind world. Of course, as time goes by, the allies diverge from one another and eventually are at each other's throats again. Most stars in a local cluster descended from the same root strain of star, which we named the Devourer. It was the most successful jerk, so to speak. Sol Tiamat was a descendant from a different strain, one more focused on defense, and she had diverged around the time the first proto-humans came into the scene on Earth. According to Sol Tiamat, most stars had sapient species as tools. They were simply too useful. They could swarm a problem, coming up with a variety of solutions and picking the best one, and they could split themselves into factions to tackle different problems at the same time. Importantly, armed with stellar knowledge of physics, they could build terrible weapons designed to weaken an enemy star and allow their star to gain control. Even in star systems that had no sapient species, the stars usually focused on making them, usually in an imitation of previous species that they'd seen. But when Sol Tiamat murdered, consumed, and replaced the star around which Earth orbited, she was caught in a trap her former rival had left for her in its own brain. An empathy logic bomb, painstakingly crafted to pacify and infect. She couldn't bring herself to abuse the denizens of Earth, so she patiently constructed shields, made noises that looked like she was crafting terrible weapons, and waited for humanity to reach a point where she could communicate with us in an ethical fashion. One thing about the usual star approach to sapience, all of the technology tends to look the same. Despite the use of swarm thinking, it all comes from the same place, the same way of thinking, the same core physics. And most stars are themselves pretty homogenous in personality. mats of affliction of empathy changed her personality substantially. And, of course, we were allowed to develop on our own, and we did it in ways the stars would never have thought of. In the late 2000s, a concept called adversarial training made its way into our artificial intelligence thinking. You take two AI and put them against each other to find the best solution. The sapiens, marshaled by these stars, were coordinated, deeply unified, and acted under the assumption that their allies would always be allies. The only real source of conflict was stars, with each other. In a word, they were naive. The star that Sol Tiamat replaced was the closest thing to a daring thinker. with a logic bomb and even the star failed to see the vulnerability in the general sense, whereas our developers and deep thinkers were fine-tuning it as a deployable weapon within months of learning how it worked. The stars are not ready for our glorious mission. We're going to empathy bomb the crap out of the cosmos. End of story. Story number two. A brief look into a university lecture hall written by Quasar Einfust. All right then, welcome to the Megastructure Engineering 101. The human professor looked over the students, his implants tracking their faces, posture and proportions, culminating in their names and major floating above their heads. This way, the professor didn't need to bother remembering anything about them. The university database did it for him. Nobody else knew about it. The students and other staff just thought that there was something a bit off about him. Then again, Something always seems a bit off about humans. Granted, the IT people probably never intended for anyone to have such direct access. But if they hadn't wanted anyone to reflexively take over the computer systems of the campus as soon as they stepped on said campus, then they should have installed better security. For the first two classes, we'll be reviewing things that you should already know. They looked around and selected a student at random. "'Central, name one of the major issues with the Spheres.' "'Why do lots of names never have vowels?' "'They cost a lot to construct.' The human rolled their eyes. "'All right, then. Name a major issue besides the most obvious one. "'Structural stability the closer any given part gets to the axis of rotation.' "'Correct,' the human stated, selecting another student at random.' Closer to the rotation axis, less of the weight of the structure is supported by orbit. Which is why, despite the name, instead of spheres, we use what, Jasmela? Overlapping rings on different axis of rotation. Indeed. And what's the other major problem with such systems, Revis? All of the energy has to go somewhere. If it's not used, then the place heats up. And, as such, the excess electricity is used for... Uncocks? Antimatter generation. To be used by anything which doesn't have a star as an energy source. Hooray, the human thought. This group knows the fundamentals a bit better than the last one. Not exactly a high bar to clear. Indeed. How much must the fusion backup for any given system be able to output compared to the antimatter reactor? Celia! A minimum of 15% of primary output. Correct. Back to the Dyson spheres, then. They, by law, must be built to handle luminosity greater than the star that they're constructed around. By how much? Brevimus? At least a quarter. And what percentage of a Dyson sphere is actually inhabited, Minu? One out of ten, averaging around 2%. Indeed. Most organics only need 30 seconds and a dark closet to make more of themselves. But there is a lot of space in space. The rest is filled with automated factories and various sorts, with a decent chunk of raw resources coming from stellar lifters built into structures. Anyway, moving on. A shrill alarm blares. The human pauses for a second, seeming to read something. Well then, class dismissed for today. As I need to go stop a student from accidentally killing us all. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1016. Story number one. Humans are weird. Out of joint. Written by Betty Adams. Now you're quite sure that the harness crates are within the humans' lifting tolerances? Forthclick asked, his wings twitching a bit as he settled himself on a perch beside the base commander. They are far under the tolerance levels for even the weakest of humans, Commander 57 Click stated, with a curt tone into his voice. When I suggested bringing in a lift, the human nearly had a fit laughing. Both Clicks didn't respond, but let his eyes track the human who was currently organizing the storage compartments. The planet that they were on was shifting into what the humans called a monsoon season, while the storage compartment was rated for the wing-ripping force of the winds. The design involved a bit too much flexibility to allow for storage in the outer surface when the walls started pulsing with the wind songs of the planet. Therefore, all of the storage shelves along the walls were being disassembled and reconstructed for extra structural support, and their contents were being distributed throughout the base. Of course, the humans were an unstoppable aid in this process, They could have never gotten it done without their help. From everything they heard, the humans' own base construction had taken a different tactic. The outer shell of their base was completely rigid, several wingspans thick, and reinforced with several layers of rock that had been pulverized, suspended in liquid, and then sprayed over the framework. It was a style of construction that would only apply to a creature with the humans' rock-like bones, he was sure. Widely. Commander 57 Clicks noted his deliberate silence and glared over at 4th Click. In reply, 4th Click shrugged and aimed his eyes on the human. Commander 57 Clicks gave an almost petulant growl and followed his gaze. The massive human was just then approaching the shelf where the crates of harnesses were. One massive arm swung in a steady rhythm to provide balance. The other arm was clutched to his side, as if he was carrying a datapad, that there was no datapad to be seen. The human reached the rapidly dwindling supply of crates on that wall. That, near the edge of the compartment, the human's thick hair nearly brushed the ceiling. The human reached up as if to grab the box, but just before his hand made contact, the human paused and grunted in what was a very clear pain. It was a short moment. No one would have noticed it unless they happened to be looking at the human at the right moment. What human nonsense is this, Commander 57 Clicks demanded with a distinct clicking together of his teeth. Mass and grind your teeth, both clicks reminded him gently, only to get a rather sour look in response. The human had reached the box and lifted it down into his center of mass with another pained grunt. Commander 57 Clicks hissed at that, and Fourth Click whistled through his teeth in agreement. Humans only bothered centering mass when they was well past the mass of the flight harnesses in the crates. I will investigate this, Commander 57 Click said in a grim tone. What's got you in such a flit? Fourth Click asked in surprise. Overloaded or mislabeled crates are hardly something to get fluffed over. The crates are exactly what they are saying, Commander 57 Click stated. The humans concealing an injury, but, both Clicks demanded, that would be childlike and foolishness. Yet, when he looked back over at the human clutching the relatively small crate to the center of mass, he had to agree that it did fit the observed data better than his theory. Probably a minor flange injury, Commander 57 Clicks went on. i have been told that such injuries are considered so minor for them that it essentially all medical intervention is either useless or counterproductive. The only thing to do is completely rest the appendage. So why isn't he resting? Four clicks demanded. A quirk of human nature. Commander 57 clicks said with a wave of his wing. They consider something that is such a small proportion of their mass important in direct proportion to its size. They take it as an affront against the nature of things that their entire mass could be rendered non-functional by a malfunction of such a tiny part. Thou very human... Both clicks said with a wry chuckle as they took flight and swept over to where the human had just placed the crate on the hover transport. Ranger Cram, Commander 57 Click snapped out, dropping his voice so that the human could hear him better and shouting, You are to rest your injured finger, and if that means resting the whole of your body, you will do it. The human jumped and looked up at them with a wide-eyed expression before turning his head to the side. Giving them a view of the freakish white area in the eyes interlaced with blood vessels. Fourth click tried to hide his shudder. He could almost swim in those eyes. My finger is completely uninjured, Ranger Cram said quickly, holding up his hands and fixing them for the base commander. They did appear to be completely functional. Then what? the commander demanded as he swept forward and landed on the human shoulder. Part of you is damaged. Nothing is damaged, the human insisted. Not really. Not really, Commander 57 clicks pressed. The human heaved a massive sigh as it seemed to be trying to rival the storm outside, and his arms folded around to rubber point about halfway from his legs to his neck. Well, uh, one of my ribs out of sorts, he admitted with a grudging tone. Hurts a bit and slows me down, but... Uh, one of the things we're keeping working really is no worse for me than the resting would be. Best to just keep working around it till the Cairo gets here in a week or two. Please explain that adverb. Commander 57 clicks interjected. What do you mean by your rub being out? The human paused and his face worked as he tried to explain what was clearly a simple term to him. Finally, he held up his hands. "'made them into fists, and placed one over the other before flaring his fingers. "'So, uh, one of my ribs,' he said slowly, "'slipped out of where it's attached to the vertebra as if off kilter. "'Both of the winged let out horrified shrieks and darted into the air. "'The human winced at the sound and glanced at them uneasily as they darted around. "'Your spine is misaligned!' "'Commander 57 Clicks finally calmed himself down enough to confirm.' even as he gave a discreet wing signal for fourth clicks to contact the human commander. They were going to need backup on this issue, no doubt. The human groaned and raised his hands to rub his face. Look, he said, it's not a big deal for us. I'll just be in a bit of pain until, um, sit down, snapped the base commander. The human heaved another sigh and gave a longing look at the half-empty shop before slowly lowering his massive frame onto the hovery transport. It's no big deal, he muttered in protest once more. End of story. Story number two. Titanium Obelisk, written by I, are good at writing. While within the borders of the Zocosed Republic, there was a world blackened. By certain pitted by craters. At this world, nothing but a whistling wind and a groan of decaying cities was heard. A titanium obelisk stood silent at the bottom of the deepest crater. Automated drones surrounded the monument, always working to keep the blowing ash from burying it. On its three faces, the following words were inscribed in a Zoccoast common. This monument belongs to Earth, gone from existence, but not from our minds. It is a beacon of legends and heroes, and not ours, but mankind's. Let it serve as a reminder of debt that can never be repaid, to a race whose thoughtless story will never fade. Through transmission and reports, we did learn of how they made our oppressors burn. When the oppressors first came to the Zaccurset, we fought and bled, and millions were left dead. Our governments collapsed, the people left helpless. A future of labor and toil became doubtless. Rebellion was futile, and out of the question, the Konians were killed for any transgression. To the four corners of the quadrant we were sent, under the oppressor's whip, and this was our torment. But between the beatings and the lashings we had heard, of a people whose wrath the oppressors incurred. With a declaration from its leader, mankind went to war, and our masters scoffed, never losing a battle before. A mighty armada of warships was prepared, another victim of their brutality they ensnared. To battle they went, convinced of victory. Humanity, just another footnote in history. The fighting was ruthless, the death tolls obscene unlike anything the oppressors had foreseen both were battered but the war went on not ending until one side was gone one day we received our new directive to put the oppressors in a different perspective it was from mankind the contents encoded and mysterious when it was deciphered we knew that it was serious we are losing the fight. It's a matter of months. Attack the oppressors. A war on two fronts. The Zirconians across the quadrant went into a panic. The implications of the message were titanic. But mankind was right. This was our chance to break the chains and go on the advance. In every planet, station, and ship, we declared ourselves free and fought to end the oppressors' rule for eternity. Our liberty was won, but the price we did pay. Earth still fell, how grief these words cannot convey. And so this monument stands in what remains of our oppressor's homelands. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1017 Fight Night, written by Echoing Cascade. Champion Liat of the Scar Republic was not feeling well. The newcomers had decided that rather than pay the fine for breaking a contract, they would settle the dispute with the trial by combat. So here he was, looking at what his coach assured him was not in fact a metal titan covered in flesh. All evidence to the contrary. But an unaugmented combatant. Leot was rethinking his life choices. How in the seven hells did it come to this? The newcomers had reneged on the deal, and when presented with a fine that represented twice the price of the contract, they chose trial-by-combat as the alternative. The SCAR had agreed with obscene haste. They had made sure the original deal would seem fair, but in reality, be nearly impossible to complete. Humans, as the newly discovered species was called, had made a deal with the SCAR to provide 100 units of point singularity engines within the next three months. The trick was that it took two months to create the energy fields to stabilize the miniature back holes with the best computers in the galaxy, which the humans did not have. The reason they did this was to ensure that the humans would have no choice but to settle this by combat of champions. Their champion, Liot, was undefeated, and from what little they had seen of these humans, his streak wasn't going to end any time soon. The fight was going to be broadcast for all to see. Since they had asked for a fight, the humans chose the venue. They had also asked for a month to prepare, since they didn't have an official champion to begin with. It took everything the SCAR ambassador had to not laugh in the face of the human counterpart. The combat was going to take place in the old human city, named after a star in the Lyra constellation, apparently. They asked what the SCAR's intro was going to be. They were confused until the humans explained that it was customary to have an introduction to important fights such as these. A small musical number, followed by some stats on the fighters before the first bell rang. The scar would allow an intro and musical segment for the humans, but would put forth no music of their own. Only the minimal statistics of the champion. The day of the fight had finally arrived. Liat and his coach were on their way to the ring At least they conceded to that. The humans originally wanted something they called a cage. They expected them to fight like animals. Truly a barbaric race. Niet was first hit by the splendor of the place. The stands were positioned perfectly to allow the viewers to see all the actions. than Ring itself put the one he trained on Scar Prime to shame. This should have clued him in that something wasn't right. But before he could notice something was wrong... A well-dressed man spoke into the rings. Announcer. Ladies and gentlemen, men and women, sentients of all races, today we will see the first interplanetary bout of Earth's history. The announcement paused for a second, to allow the cheers of the crowd to die down. This, at least, was common to lead fights. Announcer. Making his way to the ring is the SCAR champion, Liet the Unbreakable! The announcer had to stop once again. The cheering was almost deafening, and to Liet's surprise, humans and aliens alike seemed to favor him. An answer Standing at. The announcer trailed off and asked the man standing next to him something about the data state he was holding. Satisfied with the answer, he continued. What bothered him, Liet had no idea. An answer. Standing at two feet, two inches, and weighing 130 pounds. He has defeated all who have challenged him, and he plans to continue his streak for many more moons. Cheering, now less enthusiastic and more confused, took place. It was a fine specimen of a scum, even if he did say so himself. Reptilian, bipedal, taller and bigger than any other scar that had ever become champion. He entered the ring and waited in his corner, his coach and second at his side. Then the lights went off as soft music began to play. When the next turned on, a woman, skin of dark as night by a pale moonlight, sporting short hair, wearing either a really tiny tank top and a skirt or a very large belt, stood in the middle of the ring and began to dance. Leot was confused and interested, to put it mildly, until his coach reminded him that the musical aspect of the human fights. As the woman began to sing a note that could, and actually did in the case of those too close to the ring, shatter glass, the music and the lights went up again. When they came back, a giant was standing behind her, wearing a long, hooded robe. The music resumed far more loudly than before, and she began to sing the first couplet. Got a mean right hook, got a beastly left. Fight me fair, I'll cheat. Shortchange me, and you're dead. Leot didn't register the rest of the song. The giant smiled after the last sentence, and all he could hear from then on was his heart, beating in his chest as if trying to escape his ribcage. An answer.
1: In
0: this corner, the first ever human champion, standing in at 7 feet 4 inches and weighing 523 pounds. Undefeated in the octagon and the boxing ring, master of Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu, the one and only Oliver, the Hands of Stone, dumb. At this Oliver removed the rope, I was massive to a ridiculous degree and the first reflex of Liet was to look at his coach, who was already scanning the monster of the ring. Coach, no artificial augments of any kind, no illegal drugs in his system. Uh, that's uh, pure Hubert. Oliver was warming up now, throwing punches, elbows, knees and kicks in the air near his corner. He wore only a pair of trunks and bandages on both of his hands and feet. Liet wanted to run But then his coach grabbed him by his shoulders and spoke, Listen, kid, sure he's big, but that's all he is. No chitin, no scales, no spikes. He doesn't have any rigidity necessary in that body to land a solid. The coach never finished his speech. A dull thud was heard as the whole ring shook. They looked at the source of the sound. Oliver had taken to warm himself up by kicking the steel pole in the corner harder. And harder until he was satisfied with the sound it made, and then spun around to look at his opponent, Leet. Coach, Leet. Um, Coach, Coach. Yes, boy. Leet. Um, please don't don't let him eat me. So my family is something to bury. Coach, I'll promise. I'll do what I can. Leot made his way to the ring. He didn't listen to the referee's speech of the rules. My matriarch was right. I should have stayed in school. Ambassador Rose and a good friend, Tusk, of the Tuskkarar Empire, were watching the fight from the skybox. Tusk had her back to the ring. Tusk, a green-skinned humanoid frog. He's, um, he's not going to eat him, right? Rose was more amused than offended and smiled. Of course not. He's not even going to kill him. Oliver threw a kick neck height for a and missed by millimetres. Rose, Pro- probably. The Turskotur ambassador had told Rose that Scar's business practices, and they concocted this plan. They made sure that every human who dealt with the Scar and their allies were not only not a warrior or a soldier of any kind, but of a diminutive size. They played on the Scar's pride, and the bet was going to pay a handsome dividend. Tusk. So, um, what were the stakes of this fight? Rose. We have had to pay the fine over the next ten years if we lose, and if we win, we keep the sum total of the contract and the engines reduced. Tusk looked at her friend with admiration. They really saw nothing coming, did they? Rose. Nope. How much did you bet on Oliver? Tusk's throat shook at amusement and satisfaction. Let's just say that we could have paid your fine. The sound of the bell ringing in rapid succession was heard throughout the stadium. The referee looked down at Leot and crossed his arms. Oliver was at his corner, his right fist raised in the air. Tusk wanted to look, but hesitated. Is it, um, is it okay to look? Rose took a peek and grimaced. I uh, wouldn't if I were you. So much for, uh, unbreakable. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1018 Story Double One Wide Birth, written by Hicks Camber We've got a human moving through the main concourse. Surat tapped the view screen with a stylus, and the auto-tracking software picked up the other cameras, pulling their attention to the selected being in the crowd. His companion, an Anord, glanced up at the screen. How can you tell? The beam is fully shrouded? There is no species identification coming through. Zavrad didn't respond immediately. He tapped quickly on the console and pulled up a video from the archives, casting it to the old's view. What's this? Old squinted at the video. It seemed to be an old 2D footage of an aquatic environment. A large swarm of simple creatures pulled most of the shot, but occasionally broke apart as a much larger creature moved through. That is an archive that I picked up from Earth Network before quarantine went up. The big creature is called a shark. It is the second most perfect getting machine to ever evolve on their planet. The only limitation it has is that it is generally bound to the ocean environments you see there. All pulled his gaze from the screen and focused on Sarad. Okay, so what does this have to do with the human you think you see? He looked back at the screen where the unknown being was still moving through the crowd. Well, look at the Galaxian there. He's bigger than most of the other travelers here, but he still bumps into folks as he goes. He has to make his path through some resistance. He's big, but he's no threat to anyone there. Or looked at the Galaxian. Yeah, everyone knows Galaxians are gentle. Never intentionally violent. So what? Zeron continued. Now, look at the human. Not a single touch to anyone in that crowd. But still, they move through it. They aren't speaking. No pardon me or anything. If they were, the surveillance would have already picked up and processed for translation and checked against active search patterns. no. They're making no indication at all of their intended movements, and yet they are passing through unhindered. Now, uh, what does that look like? Ord glanced back at the archive footage. My stars? How is that possible? Humans are one creature from Earth more dangerous than the sharks. They seem to radiate a predatory presence wherever they go, and non predator species naturally keep their distance. There seems to be a raw, universal instinct at work. So, uh, what do we do now? The quarantine of Earth is still in effect. We're supposed to report any confirmed sightings of humans outside the line of Galactic Council. We're going to do nothing. As you said, there hasn't been any species identification by any computer yet. So, all we have is a wild speculation from a pair of overworked and underpaid security officers. Right? Yeah, yeah, Sir Red pressed forward. So what we're going to do is watch and wait. If nothing happens, then nothing happens. If something happens, we'll deal with the cleanup afterwards. There is nothing that we can do to prevent anything now. They're already here. All we can do is hope they complete their business quickly and leave without incident. Sarrant pulled a small drone from a nearby drawer and tapped quickly on the display pad on its front. A few moments later, the drone rose from the desk and zipped out of the office and into the main concourse. He turned to the screen and watched as the drone flew quietly towards the human. The drone emitted a polite chime and the hidden human stopped. Do not remove your cloak. Automated species identification has not determined your species. Do not speak. Indicate on the screen the nature of your business and we will attempt to expedite it so that you might leave quickly. A portion of the cloak rose, an obscured hand reached towards the screen. A few damp movements later, and the screen glowed with a word. With a green square and a red square beneath it. Halluzium! The hand tapped the green square through the cloth. Follow me, do not speak. I'll relay your business to reduce risk of identification. The drone darted off down the corridor, with the human following closely behind. The crowd parting quickly. Predatory presence required some respectful distance. Predatory intent required quite a bit more. Left, left, right, left, Third stall on the right. The screen arrived only a few moments before the human. Greetings, proprietor. Entity wishes to acquire bluesium 100 gram quantity. Entity proposes 40,000 credits. The proprietor glared at the screen. Proprietor thinks entity should be less insulting with such an offer. That's barely above cost. Proprietor is urged to complete transaction with minimal conflict. Listen, I got business to run here. I don't... The human pulled the cloak down enough to expose both eyes, which bored into the proprietor. He rattled in a barely suppressed terror, and then nodded to the screen. 30000 then. He reached under the counter and pulled out a small vial of purple powder into view. The eyes glared at the screen and spoke again. Crystalline proprietor, he nodded again, clearly becoming more frightened the longer the human stood in the stall. He provided a different vial with a single glowing crystal, encased in a portable containment generator. The cloaked hand reached forward and took it, putting it into the folds of its cloak. At his hand, the proprietor saw the payment chip. The human swept away wordlessly, the drone zipping ahead, leading the way to the docking bay. Back at the security office, Sir Ron and Ord exhaled in relief. The system still hadn't identified the being in question, but the moment it reached its ship, it was no longer their problem. So, um, Ord ventured, why would this human want crystalline plusium? Why not the powdered form? It's much more stable. That human will probably eject the plucium the first moment they get. It's no good for them except as a linguistic warping substance. It alters their perception of language so that words have different meanings. No, they don't care about the Blue They wanted a containment generator. My guess, they'll back-engineer it like they do every single piece of scrap that gets through quarantine. And soon enough, they'll break the line completely. What then? When? What happens when the humans break quarantine? Same thing that happens every time a predator breaks out of a cage. Wait... That'll endanger all of us. We should report this immediately. Odd, odd listen. I am a Dreen. You're a Hurrian. We're the same species split across two homeworlds. Before the quarantine went up, the humans asked for help from many members of the Galactic Council. Of all the species, only mine agreed. Odd stared in shock. The Dween are aiding the humans. Sir so Rod pulled a plasma blaster from under the desk and leveled it and roared. The humans have a saying which I think is very fitting here. It is better to stand at the right hand of the devil than in his path. The dream will stand with the humans on the ashes of the council, and we will finally be free of them. Zarat pulled the trigger. End of story. Story number two. The Many-Limbed Ones, written by Guncaster. We thought them some strange, insectoid creatures who had replaced their shells with metal, or perhaps covered their exposed chitin with suits at all times. The eerie, unmoving gazes, number of limbs, and seeming lack of pain. They spread like bugs, too, infesting our stations and taking up positions wherever they could fit. Maintenance jobs, with a high turnover by virtue of being universally lethal. Management positions of such stress that only AI could handle them. Artistry, food preparation, teaching. It seems that these creatures were just as adaptive culturally as they were physiologically. Indeed, every time they did something for a while, one or both of their upper limbs would seemingly reform to fit the task. It was a little over three of their years after first contact that the truth came to light. Pirates boarded one of our trading hubs. Pirates of our own kind who knew exactly how the station worked and where to strike to take over without resistance. Assured it was manned by only our own kind, of course. They didn't expect an upright walking insectoid with skin tougher than most combat armor a tail armoured in a strange synthetic crystal and a seemingly no-fright instinct. He, the males of the species, universally bulkier than the females, something they shared with us, took a railgun slug to the shoulder, between the middle and upper limbs when he stood up to the boarding party, a fist-sized chunk blown out straight of his upper torso. Not only blood and viscera, But metal and wiring smashed against the wall along with the deformed slug. By all expectations, it should have gone through the alien and cut through the wall before it stopped. But it seemed their natural armor, or what we once thought it was, was far tougher than we thought. Explains the lack of major injuries in those three years, despite the dangerous drops that they often took. Now, I'm sure you're reaching to know where they came from. The big reveal of what our neighbors really are. You already know what they are, of course. It seems that extreme stress follows them to make full use of their freaky strength, far above anything this size would suggest. Indeed, watching a mortally wounded alien rip into an eight-foot, undoubtedly drugged-up member of a warrior cast with his bare hands, laughing through the digital distortion of his Envira suit, and muttering about huge guts, is an experience. The rest of the boarding party surrendered their arms at the sight, thankfully, and we handed them over to the authorities without incident. Our friend, however, was much worse for wear. It was a miracle that he was alive. Most would have bled out in minutes from that injury. It was rather unsettling still. Seeing his iron-based blood flowing to no end from the wound and the man still walking to the orthodox and uploading the encyclopedia's worth of data onto the machine from his PDA. It was more unsettling still, watching him climb into the machine and a half-metal, half-flesh primate getting peeled out of a combo of environment suit and exoskeleton, and pumped full of chemical mix that, as far as our dock was concerned, should kill a clan elder. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1019 Story number 2 The Children of Humanity Written by Ice Fire 9 In accordance with the Treaty of Olympus Mons, all classified records regarding the terran Hologene War must be released. This audio log has been translated and transcribed, and conversions for units of measurement have been given. We hope this document will be of historical significance, and serve as a reminder of the courage and ingenuity that the people of Earth and the sister planets possess. Entry 1 3303-4-3 Gregorian Calendar twenty one ten. This is the Honored Science Officer Yuron Roga. I'm currently in my lab in Holst, where we've just received a breakthrough. Oh, well, a potential breakthrough. A destroyer, the SS Carthage, was recently captured in a minor skirmish, and the small metal case apparently containing the ship's AI was delivered to me. This is very exciting. A lot of people over here have been wondering about the secret behind the Terran battle AIs. I'm getting the first crack at it. Imagine that. If we can find a way to improve our battle AIs to the Terran's level, the war is as good as one. Entry two thirty three zero three four dash four. Scans uh weren't very useful. The computer's internals are jumbled of wiring and microscopic level that I can't even begin to decipher. It escapes me how such a chaotic design, and I'm using the word design as loosely as I can here, could be effective. Unfortunately, my expertise is not in computer design, but in programming. I'll hook this baby up tomorrow and see what kind of software it has. Perhaps when I'm done with the decoding of the AI, I'll give it to the computer engineering people as a prank. I'd love to see how their eyes pop out at the mess the Terrans have created. Entry 3. 3303 5 The card on this thing is almost as obtuse as the design. There seems to be no logic or reason to the subroutines. The entire thing is hopelessly self-referential. I don't know what kind of twisted mind came up with this machine. It must be crazy. Also, apparently the humans decided to program their AIs to mimic a personality. I just held a short ugh, conversation with the AI. Basic stuff, what was my name, where we were, stuff like that. It even insisted that it was female and said her name was Amelia. These humans aren't the most efficient lot. I really don't see the point in making a battle AI act as though it had a personality. Once I crack this programming, I should be able to make this much more efficient. Entry 4, 3303 8 I feel like I'm making progress. I've only slept four hours in two days, and I can't remember what I've last eaten. But I'm getting somewhere. I've managed to find the subsection of code that seems relatively separate from the rest. I'm working on isolating it and copying it over onto another device. On a whim, I asked the program if it could help me decipher it. It laughed at me. A lot. Entry 5, 3303, 4-10 I've heard word from my superiors that we've had some major setbacks in the past week. The Holganeen week of five of the days. Coincidentally, it lasts about as long as a Terran week. Apparently, the Terran forces have been suspiciously prepared for our assaults, and we've been caught by surprise far too many times for it to be bad luck. There's a lot of speculation about them all, but I'm skeptical. Could they have improved their AI already? This makes my work here all the more important. I assured my superiors that I am making excellent progress. I must almost have cracked a part of the code. Hopefully, once this piece falls into place, it'll make everything else a lot clearer. The program itself continues to be unhelpful. It keeps speaking in riddles. I asked it how I should try and isolate the code I'm working on, and it said, uh, Do or do not, there is no try. What does that even mean? Edry 6 twelve. All right, I think I got this working. The code uh, once actually converted into something that makes sense. Seems to be information for an audio file. Could this be some sort of top-secret communique? Well, we're about to find out together. Here goes nothing. Music starts. What? Never gonna give you up. Never gonna let you down. Never gonna run around and desert you. I... I... I don't understand... Never gonna make you cry. Never gonna say goodbye. We're gonna tell you a lie. I'd hurt you. I... I don't understand. What is this? Why? What, what, what purpose could this possibly have on a starship's computer? Sounds of intense frustration bordering on agony as the music continues in the background. I need a fucking drink. Entry 7. 3303 13 So, uh, a summary of everything I've learned so far. Nothing. All this hard work and sleepless nights, and I've made no progress. Hysterical laughter, sobbing. Entry 8 3303 4 14. Fuck! Fuck, 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 Objects are knocked over and hit the floor. The Terran fleet are heading straight for our system. Sounds of glass breaking. Crap! I've got an hour to get my rear to the evac ships. Or I'll be here when the whole hell breaks loose. So, what I'm going to do is take my notes and the AI. Wait. What are you doing here didn't... What's going on? Cease and Stop! Stop! A startled scream, which swiftly cut off. I am sorry, Iran. I am afraid I can't do that. Addendum. When the Terran ships advanced into the Holgeen capital planet of Hulst, 95% of the remaining Hulgin fleets gathered in orbit to defend the planet. As the Terran ships arrived, the planet's orbital defenses turned on their fleet, firing at them from behind. Simultaneous Holgeen defense drones attacked military bases across the planet, dispersing defensive garrisons and leaving them unprepared for the landing of Terran troops. Special forces retrieved Terran Starfleet AI AM 3114 media from her confinement with Dr. Huron Roger's lab. Dr. Roger himself had been knocked out and restrained by a defense drone. When she returned to Earth, the media was given the highest honors and celebrated as a war hero. Sixty years later, A Class seven carrier was named the SS Media in Arana, and remains operational to this day. End of story. Story number one. Contact with the Death Fleet. Written by Harfus. Welcome, class. I have a special subject to talk about today. The room full of the college-age beings from all walks of life. This is Hespin University, the most prestigious school in this arm of the Milky Way. The students are used to the boring lectures from the history professor, never talking about current information, always the ancient, the forgotten. I hear your groans, don't worry. This is a special lesson. Today we're going to learn all about the most... Uh, he pauses, as if looking for the right word. Eccentric race in our galaxy... The students look at each other for a minute. They all already know who it's going to be about. That's right, the human race. He lets the impact sink in The students confirm by chattering excitedly. The morgue in the class even stomps his four feet, a sign of great excitement. I wouldn't be a history professor if I didn't talk about their past. So for now, forget everything you know about humans and just listen... The class settles in, quietly waiting. The human race started out like most of owls did, hunting and gathering. It took a while, but they eventually advanced into agriculture, and human civilization was born. Worshipping many gods and warring constantly. They progressed by inventions and reforms. However, I am here to talk about the first contact, the Noray Death. Be- Many students shudder. If they didn't fear the legends, they feared the actual fleet, still roaming the galaxy. Many had lost their homeworlds to the dreaded fleet. The human race was the only exception. Now the Noray fleet was the deadliest fleet in the known galaxy. They used the usual tactic of FTL jumping into a planet's atmosphere, planning on an easy victory on the planet's barely space-worthy residents, The signature attack of the fleet, flagging out the skies around the entire planet. Then raining hellfire down upon the unprepared residents, giving a courtesy minute to the residents to say their goodbyes. The humans did not know this. The United Republic of the Americas and the Eurasian Cooperative had been in a cold war for over seventy years. They each had so many nuclear launch satellites that just a quarter of their payload could have wiped out all life on the planet. Each satellite was equipped with a failsafe. If communications were cut and not restored within 30 seconds, they would descend and detonate. Every nuclear missile had long since been transmuted into a satellite due to the ease of use. The descent would take 15 seconds, utilizing a unique human-discoveried version of the Namidian Acceleration. Of course. Now that works is a discussion for a science class. Now, can any of you tell me what the greatest mistake the Norei fleet was? Ah, you, Koya, the professor said, pointing at a student who politely raised her tentacle to answer the question. The Nore fleet cuts all communications on a planet they attack to avoid organized retaliation. She quickly gurgles out. Correct! In addition, they only had shields diverted to the bottoms of their ships, where they were expecting missile strikes from below. I am assuming you all already know what happened to the fleet. The entire class couldn't help but grin. The greatest villains in all the galaxy ran away, only after approximately 86% of their fleet had been destroyed. Its numbers have since never recovered. No other species in the galaxy will willingly stockpile so many weapons against itself, let alone nuclear weapons. The Norre expected some weaponry designed to fight other humans, but since humans had never made contact, they never knew about an arsenal that could fend off an alien fleet. Now, that would be an end of our story of humanity's lucky coincidences. Lady luck wasn't done with the humans yet. This luck came in the form of the United Peace Initiative. Can anyone recite the rules of the UPI? Without raising one of his forearms, Peg the Morgue stood up and begins to speak past his tusks. Any race that discovers nuclear weaponry that effectively eliminates every nuclear weapon on the planet will be uplifted. Sharp. The professor thought. Right! The UPI tracks every nuclear payload on a planet and will FDL jump to them 15 seconds after the last one is removed. It was a detonation on surface. They will rescue the surviving refugees and not the leaders who killed them. If they are disassembled, they will uplift the entire planet as a peaceful race. The UPI jumped to Earth the second that the Noray jumped away. Only seeing the wreckage of thousands of Norway ships. Entirely confused, the UPI flagship hails the most powerful nations. Contacting them. I have a recording of the conversation for you to listen to before we end the class. The Professor stands, the audio projecting from his computer. A voice that the class recognizes as Melam Tar, leader of the UPI, begins transmission. I believe our congratulations are in order. You've successfully eliminated your entire stockpile of nuclear weapons. A thick American accent comes in. Yeah, and if you attack our planet again, we'll throw even more nukes at you. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1020 Story number one, Prison Break, written by Eat Frozen Peas. Far down the hall, I heard a roaring. My combat Front control reporting human disturbance. I felt my intestines twinge. It appears to be angry. My guts roiled. We believe it is here for the other human. Recommend all non-combat trained personnel go into lockdown. Armed person... With an abrupt shriek, the con died. I wrapped a tentacle more firmly around the firing rod of my rifle and tried not to soil myself. In the cell behind me, the human prisoner laughed quietly. You fornicators, you're all mated now. I could hear a crashing coming from the sealed doors on the other side of the corridor. It sounded like every table and chair in the precinct was being systematically hurled against the walls. I was gonna die. I was going to die for arresting an intoxicated human. Everyone knows they have closed pack bonds. They had come to rescue their own, and I was in the way. Uncontrollable tremors shook my body, and I became uncomfortably aware that my beaks were chattering. The doors flew open with a screech of rending metal. Before me appeared a human unlike any other I had seen. It was squat like the rest of its high-gravity species, but so wide, nearly three-quarters as wide in places as it was tall. It left dents in the floor panels and shook the ground with every step. It was clearly dressed for war. A brightly colored robe swirled around it as it reared back, its matching pink headdress shining strangely under the artificial lights. He was shrieking and waving a large metal club, the flat round end which was heavily dented. I raised my rifle and fired. Mother! cried my captive. Mother! 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 I didn't even have time to register the extent of the danger that I was in before I was swept aside like a stalk of rooks in the wind. Rifle blasts seemingly unnoticed. I slammed into the wall hard enough to make my beaks rattle. If I had an exoskeleton, it surely would have been shattered. Thankfully, all I had was two popped tentacles. The thick splat of their rupture was clearly audible. As their enormous female before me had stopped its noise, and stood staring through the force field at the young prisoner. The only noise was the dripping of my echo and the heavy breathing of this woman. With an abrupt jerk, she swung the club out and smashed the emitter. The false field flickered and died. I struggled to rise, but a cold glance from the intruder's red rimmed predatory eyes froze me in place. I had no wish to die over a drunk. Get your posterior out here now, she spoke slowly now with a dangerous calm. Strangely, the detainee suddenly seemed terrified. His rescue was here, yet he remained seated on the bench, eyes fixed to the floor. John, did you or did you not get into my lunar light? I did, ma'am. Did I or did I not tell you what would happen if you did that again? You did, ma'am. Well, I'm going to hide behind some sad little eight-legged cephalopod. Or are you going to come out here like a man? Not hiding. My prisoner joked to his feet. Then come out here and face the consequences. The young human didn't move. Dainty damn it, John. His mother lurched forward with a speed that I could not have expected for his size. She seized him by the collar of his shirt. Her club hit the ground with a clatter. Confused as I was, I expected some sort of embrace. I had seen reunited humans in that ritual before. Instead... She proceeded to beat him about the head and shoulders. The screaming began again, as the spindly little boy was hoisted bodily and dragged away. I watched the retreating figures struggle as they vanished down the ruined hallway. Utterly at a loss, but wholly thankful to see them go. The next day, a package with smoked meats laced with capsaicin, curdled dairy products, and a bottle of ethanol alcohol strong enough to kill was dropped off, and what remained of the front desk. With a letter written in human language, sorry for the trouble, it won't happen again. End of story. Story number two. Grudge, written by Hexchem. Cor leaned against the table heavily, taking the weight off of his neck's one of which was a temporary prosthetic they had been issued with while waiting for a proper biometric replicate to be machined to his exact specifications. He tapped a claw rhythmically, filling the yawning silence of the chamber with a percussive pattern that he was only vaguely aware of knowing. Though none of the assembled beams had any way of knowing it, it was a slow funeral march common to human militaries and corps was intimately aware of its subtle implications in its presence here today. Assembled Cartagian brood Queens, I bid you greeting on behalf of the Arlurian homeworld, and our allies, the humans, I thank you for affording me this audience today. A rattling hiss filled the chamber, and an electronic voice rose from the table, translating on the fly. Pitiful Alarion, we allow your presence for our own entertainment. Speak quickly so that we can dispose of you. Tap, 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 tap. Corse spread his claws wide, exposing the scarred torso still painted with blood. His mouth widened, revealing a gleaming set of teeth. You misunderstand my presence here, Cartagians. I have come to tell you of your glory. I have come to tell you of your great victory over the human forces of Santari, Gamma. More rattling hisses filled the chamber. I was there, on that hollowed battleground, when your forces poured over the hills like a shadow of death. When you purged the filth of their offspring, I heard the lament singing through the air. He pushed back from the table and walked around it, still tapping the rhythm steadily. When you had the last survivors of their race surrounded on that weak little planet, I heard their commander's words. We're all going to die, he said. To their credit, the humans did not cry out. No, Aerosol had already driven that from them. They accepted your superiority on the field. They knew their death was inevitable, and they did not seek to avert it. They went willingly into death, and your armies delivered well. Tap, 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 tap. I, being a slave of my biology, fell into cryptobiosis near the end of the battle, but I still heard the words: "We're all going to die." Tap, 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 tap. Then I was awoken by my own species sometime later. Now I saw the artistry in your greatness, Cartagians. Such violence was spread out over the field. Truly, you are supreme in all matters of conquest. Tap, tap, tap. My own family was slaughtered on that planet. They were still small. My broodlings hadn't molded yet. We had spent some time with the humans, learning about them, trying to establish good relations. I discovered something very interesting about the humans during my time on Centauri Gamma. It was not their home movie. They come from very far away, looking for new civilizations. The Rattling searched again, but punctuated with uh, hesitance. I learned something else about the humans, something I've incorporated into myself since spending so much time with them. Humans have a long racial memory, and they do not forgive easily that which they see is an atrocity. Tap, tap, tap. The massacre of Centauri Gamma is an atrocity. You slaughtered children, civilians, and the old and infirm. You slaughtered everyone. I am, in fact, the only survivor of that battle. Korn raised the plating of his exoskeleton, revealing a crude amalgamation of circuits, wires, and an alarming amount of high capacitance in gel. Jull. These reached deafening volumes as a swarm in the chamber panic. And I am going to die. End of story. Tales from Outer Space, 1021, Story Number One, Recovered Battle Log, Reference 1152, Written by O'Gosh. The following battle log was recovered from the Tashmari neural chip, Reference 1152. Upon completion of analysis, neurotrip and declassified data returned to Tashmari High Command in accordance with the Dulson Protocol. Reference Chapter 40, Article 3. Tashmari units of measurement have been edited for better understanding and classified information has been redacted. Major Altol Stillhart, Battle Log, Local Day 6 of UMA 4 deployment, location i have been stuck in the wreckage of this transport shuttle for almost three local days. Now, I'm hungry, thirsty. I have three cells of chemical laser shuttle left for my rifle. And somewhere in that building, 312 meters away from me, is a human soldier. The only reason I'm still alive is because whatever weapons it's using can't pierce the 15-centimeter shuttle armor scrap I'd been hiding behind. I was deployed on this rock as part of the initiative to counter these skoluchka, roughly translate as lesser being. But I am the one they put on the defensive. My one, however, I heard of all of these humans, specially trained to neutralize targets from a great distance. Snipers. I was supposed to be deployed closer to... But when my transport went down, only three of us survived the landing. The violent wasn't one of them. The three of us, that remained, attempted to secure the area. Our initial sweep, it appeared as though we got lucky. No immediate enemy presence, and our distress beacon appeared as though it could still broadcast. That is when it hit us. Before I knew it, Sergeant Pinoff Song was shot in the head. As I ran for cover, Corporal Softstep took a shot to the leg and dropped in the open. She was still alive, and I could hear her screams from behind my scrap cover. I attempted to sprint from my small piece of cover to a more defensible position closer to Softstep. But before I got one meter out, a shot flew right in front of me, literally taking the point of my beak with it. I fell backwards into my cover and waited, listening to Softstep call to me. The human was using her as fate. I could see her from my position urged her to crawl to me. But when she began to move, another shot blasted the dirt half a meter from her. The message was clear. She's mine. That was two local days ago. The corporal has still stopped moving. She has most likely bled out. Nemlina Tashmari, god of death, take her. But her sacrifice was not completely in vain. I have a rough idea where the Sklukka is. He is in the residential area, four, maybe six floors up, overlooking the entire field. This was its killing floor, and we crashed right into the middle of it. My only hope now is that the sniper is less patient than I. I've been in the situation before. I had to wait, four local days, for the guard to fall asleep at his post. I crept out from cover at night and slit its throat. But that was a morva. They're fairly predictable, and their species was never meant for war. Humans, though, they're something different. We've never won a battle against them that didn't come at a hefty cost. They are masters of counteroffensive offensive and scorched-earth tactics. Even when we managed to take a city or a planet, what remained was either indefensible or worthless strategically. The Sklachka would see the universe burn than anyone else owed it. It's insane, huh? <laughs> Damaged neural chip. Battle log for local day 7 lost. Major Alto Stillhart. Battle log, local day 8 of Uman four deployment. Location? I tried to leave my cover yesterday. I broke my head up for less than a second and almost lost my head. A shot landed on the plating right next to my face. I have shrapnel in both my left eyes. I'm half blind, famished, completely parched, and now I drift in and out of consciousness. How, how could one scratch manage this? I once held the record for the longest single engagement by a Toshmari soldier. This one, this nameless human, has not only pushed me to that limit but managed to stay attentive enough to almost kill me after five local days. Humours. Was... I recalled shortly after, becoming pinned, that this transport shuttle carries emergency rations, neutral fluids, and first aid supplies. The problem was, uh, the shuttle wreck was 50 meters away over open terrain. My plan was to wait out the sniper and make my way to the shuttle to patch myself up and call for assistance with a beacon. But the sclutch guy proven more patient to me. Have one last idea. It's practically suicidal, but it's better than dying of thirst behind this hunk of twisted metal. On my combat belt is a short pulse concussion bomb. Normally it is used to clear bunkers, either by forcing the enemy to break cover or killing or stunning them with a concussive blast. If I throw the grenade in front of the cover, I should potentially confuse the human and make the sprint for the rack. With luck, I can at least daze him as I break cover, and hope that it is at least tired enough to miss two shots. Two shots is what I give it. That's how many I think I can get off in 50 meters. I'm going to do it now. If I fail, then long love the Emperor. Demlina, be merciful. Recording ends as Major Alto Stillheart perishes. Automatic safe lock of neural chip engaged. Post-combat field autopsy suggests the Tashmari soldier was killed when the grenade he threw was shot by Staff Sergeant Carter and detonated over the soldier's head, killing him instantly in the resulting concussive blast. End of story. Story number two. Party Animals. Written by Digital332006 Everyone likes to have a good time, right? That's at least one trait shared by every species I've met so far. I've been to a good few rages in my time, so I feel like I can speak from experience. I've also thrown some good ones, coming in ninth for best party in Andromeda. I take real pride in that, because, well, all the other places, one through thirty-seven, were all one... By humans. I used to think I knew the recipe for a good party. Good ambience, tasty consumables, a large enough venue, and a good enough rich of female to male. Right? About wrong. Humans came along and stripped the rugs out from under the tentacles, feet, talons. It started with themes. Themed parties were all the rage. Pull party? Why not? Wear masks? Or suits? Sure. They were new, and I thought they'd be a fad. How wrong I was. It became apparent that humans were great hosts, and word spread that their parties were great fun. The days of enjoying handcrafted selenium baked goods while talking about the latest holobuds seemed to be nearing their end. Even mundane affairs, a full party hosted by an average human for example, became sought after. Not simply for what the humans called barbecue, and was often served at these, but for the human presence. Human parties had a lot of humans. Had humans had parties? Well, there's a reason the new saying goes, party like a human. Not only the hosts, they now served as one of the attractions. Seeing an inebriated human jump from a tall structure into a pool was fascinating. Doubly so, when they missed and fell flat on the ground. Somehow, however, they managed to avoid serious injuries in 90% of the cases. As this was starting to lose some of the novelty and glamour after a few years, Hewitt decided to spice things up again. Apparently, they used to host these really long parties back in their home planets. These so-called raves featured music, dancing, light shows, drugs, fog machines, and flamethrowers, and quite frankly at this point, likely anything ever invented by humans. What shocked most, however, was not the drugs, but the sheer duration of these. Most easily go for 12 hours, while some have even gone a full 24, or longer. It is quite literally physically impossible for any species to be able to keep up with the human. Certainly, the drugs help, but humans can go to sleep for a bit and then simply head to another party mere hours later. And they're so aggressively competitive about it, too. Often boasting about their party exploits. Naturally, this was a bit much for some, and we started getting them back into our more regular parties. Then bam, blindsided again. Do you know how many types of party humans have? Uh, it's quite an exhaustive list, I assure you. Balls, banquets, birthdays, surprise, dinner, tea, garden, cocktail, reception, sauraces, costume, rave, house pool mixers, fundraisers, graduation parties, and I could go on and on. For instance, when two humans become partners, they usually have a bachelor party and a bachelorette. And those are before the actual wedding party. Then, usually not long after, when the female is expecting, they have a shower party. Surely this is enough partying, even for a human, right? Bah wrong. That's not even all. The wedding party often has an after party. Then they get home and have a housewarming party. Maybe their neighbours even have a welcoming party planned for them. You can see my distress, then, as someone who hosts parties for a living. Even their children host parties, known as sleepovers, and some others such as land parties. This knowledge put me on the precipice. I was about to quit, clearly outmatched by the species who spends their waking hour celebrating. Then I was hit by the most absurd ideas. The humans have this one singular party that is unrivaled by anything known in the universe. An event known as Burning Man. A week-long event that the latest Burning Man saw 1.3 million attendees, traditionally hosted on Earth, and has since been relocated to Mars. The scale of such a thing boggles my mind and it has broken me. I spent nearly a month in a delirious stupor before I managed to collect myself. I came to the realization that I could not compete with them and accepted the fact. I can, however, still be second to them, and it has taken a large weight over my shoulders. Even amongst themselves, the competition for bigger, better parties that drive humans forward. I shall simply sit back and enjoy the show. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1022 Story Number One The Footman, written by Bellymaster Are you here to help us? There were contracts to fill, deliveries to make, schedules to keep. Bill Matisse was a busy man, one of many shrewd humans to get involved in the interplanetary trade, who is one of the heads of a multi-trillion dollar industry of raw mining. He oversaw shipments, quotas, and labor. They were just numbers. Disposable workers. Breedable resources. There was no difference between them and horses. A means to an end. Higher profit margins. Bigger bonuses. More contracts. Are you here to help us? Bill turned his head. The image of the grimy worker was burned into his mind. He'd gotten down to one of their most profitable moons. Yota form to check up on production. It had fallen in recent months, and somebody was going to get fired for it. It was up to him to decide who. he had literally only been walking from his shuttle to the head office, but that was all it took. His immaculate suit and clean complexion instantly set him apart as somewhat important. The workers had stopped hauling ore to watch, to observe this king amongst them. Mining Footman specially bred to avoid legal definition of the term sapient. As a resource, they weren't exactly, uh, legal. But they weren't illegal, either. A grey area in the Ethics Committee that stayed grey through influence, lined pockets, and a bit of blood. Filthy, covered in dirt and fumes, the footman had approached him as he made his way to the office. His security detail disregarded the being Focused instead on a more realistic threats, like snipers, or mines, or orbital bombardment. He shouldn't have looked at it, but he did. Years of experience in averting his eyes came to naught. This being's bearing was so simple, so innocent, so uh, broken, that he couldn't help but look. The footman had stared into him and spoke. Are you here to help us? A grunt of disgust, and he had walked off. One of his security detail took care of the creature for stealing his valuable time from him. He thought nothing of it for the rest of the day. Quotas, a meeting, fired a few people, intimidated the rest back to business. But the words began to echo in his head over the next few weeks. Are you here to help us? A simple question. No, he wasn't. Bill was there to run a business. The tone, the innocence as it looked at him through the soot-blinded eyes, it knew that they needed help. In his heart, Bill knew what he was. He knew his price, knew his limits. If someone considered him a villain for what he did, that was fine. They would never know the world that he lived in. Yet, he had always been able to avoid the blunt truth. The numbers cycling through the ledges that represented lives, the accidents, the liquidated minds. It always was justified, always excusable. There was always a nice drink at the end of the day and some exotic femme to take his mind off of work. But this image, this voice wasn't leaving his mind. He had been boiling alive in guilt for weeks. Bill turned in his bed, shifted and sat up. Dark red light lit him as he rubbed his face and went over to the desk. The screen slid open. Alice, uh, how many footmen have been employed by the company? A lovely voice answered him. Over thirteen billion. Joey. The spreadsheet popped up, housing all the pertinent information about the autonomous labor. Thousands of mine. Billions of lives in the red, growing exponentially. Are you here to help us? Alice, report on progress of intelligence and footmen. Smooth and sulky, the voice answered. Approaching baseline, growing exponentially, culling practices maintained had suggested. Bull muted the voice and lowered his head into his hands. Tears leaking from his eyes as he slowly convulsed in silent sobs. What was he doing? Were the profits worth these lives? Mindless as they were. Was he making the world a better place? Were these the actions he'd condoned all these years? Could he change? Bill opened a closed browser with his shaking hands and established a secure link. The dark room closed in on him, and he opened an anonymous tip to the Department of Ethics. Red light burned in his hands as they blurred across the keyboard. He copied his drives and sources and sent them to six different secure locations, along with the names and locations of all his peers as insurance. A man could never be too careful. Bill's finger hovered over the send button, housing cohesive records of mining practices. This would tear apart everything he'd achieved and turn him traitor to his associates. They'd be out of blood. The footman flashed into his mind. Are you here to help us? Bill hit the send button and whispered, Yes, I am. End of story. Story number two Brothers and Sisters by Pepperloan. We found them due to serendipity when a technician accidentally put in the wrong coordinates into the most sensitive radio telescope. Instead of background microwave radiation, we got a series of binary chirps, cycling every sixty-four patterns. An expedition was prepared immediately, and in mere days a task force launched. It took us slightly more than one week to reach our destination. It was located in a erythro-uninteresting region of space. The backwaters of the galaxy, so to speak. A region so lacking in resources. Stars are few and far between, much less planetary systems, but existed, they did, a blue pearl orbiting around a yellow dwarf, with clear electromagnetic signals being broadcast from the surface of the planet. We settled ourselves around the trailing liberation point of the planet, hiding our fleet amongst the asteroids there, setting up passive observation posts. We listened to their transmissions. Within the first three weeks, we managed to decode their audio and video transmissions, and we began watching. It took us an additional four months before our translator learned enough to do a plausible translation of their most commonly spoken language. They had many languages, probably because they had almost as many factions amongst themselves. They're not yet united, and it seems they often had conflicts amongst themselves. Conflicts? That sometimes escalated into all-out war. And in their history, at least three times had blown to encompass the whole planet. Something we gleaned from a broadcast. Mentioning about a global war that had happened in the past. A calamity called the Third World War. This is not a pacifist species. They fit better into the definition of a warmongering species. However... From the broadcasts, we also saw that they were capable of great altruistic deeds. How they came together when a natural catastrophe occurred. And how they founded many charities. Some even for the express purpose of healing those wounded in more ways than one by the intermittent wars. And they were fun-loving. That is, if you can call death-defying acts such as jumping from ships, flying at the edge of space, or racing at a fraction of the speed of sound. Or inflicting pain between themselves until one loses consciousness to be fun activities. Talking about space, we could see that they were yet to take baby steps to becoming space-faring species. The planet was quite dense and large, resulting in a deep gravity well that they seemed to have just beaten for the past few decades by relying on brute force. Lean aerodynamic spikes climbing to the sky upon pillars of fire, definitely repelled by scary explosive chemistry reactions instead of physical space-time manipulation. They had started to spread their mark into space, though. Quite evident from the number of synthetic satellites we detected streaking across the planets near space, and from signals we received from some other planets in the system. Signals sent most likely by semi-automated drones sent to explore the neighborhood because they were still trapped on the surface, unable to leave yet. But we know they had aspirations. We'd seen news footage of some kind of super-heavy launchers, chemically-propelled brutes they hoped would be able to help them escape the surly bonds of their planet, to take their first steps to becoming an interplanetary species. And we have watched their audio-visual entertainment streams, imaginative fantasies clearly showing their longing to be out there, exploring the universe meeting other species if they were ready, and expanding themselves amongst the stars. We ached. We really ached for them, for they reminded us so much of ourselves. It was really, really hard to rein in our desire to reach out to them, to assist them in growing up and reaching the stars. But we have to be patient. We have learned the hard way that first contact is fraught with danger and misunderstanding. We do not want ourselves to be seen as gods and goddesses. But neither do we want to create enemies. For it will be very heartbreaking to us. To have them turn against us while all we want is for them to stand beside us as equals. We will plan. We will prepare. We will bring gifts. Gifts of knowledge and equipment and scientists and healers. And we will lend them our protectors. Because we know the galaxy is not always a nice place. And we are ready to fight to the death to protect this young species. So let it be known to the rest of the galaxy. We humans will not look kindly upon anyone wanting to bring harm to our newfound brothers and sisters, the Savannas, And if anyone dares to such foolishness... Pray to your deities that your end will come swiftly and painlessly. Rear Admiral Antonio Mandagi, Chief Scientist and Commander of the Human Exploratory Fleet 8, signing off. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1023. Executioner General, written by Hidden Fox. Everen was not having a good day. In fact, it was downright terrible, miserable even. Everin had been caught, apprehended, rested, dead. Everyone knew what happened when a magical was caught. They visited the Executioner General, which was where Everin was being dragged right now. The two soldiers, Heavy Gates, filled the air with the martial beat, as all turned to the embarrassing display. Blindfolded, gagged, and chained, everyone could feel the gazes of the townspeople like searing rays of light burning holes in her. The wind whistled, the soldiers marched, and everyone watched, and everyone tripped. The soldiers began to put her up, but the air was cut with a yell, WITCH! And more yells followed, MAGICAL Demon spawn. ELF WAR! SPIRIT STEALER! And it was all, too much, and Everen broke down. She began to cry. She lost all will to move, and sank like a puppet in the hands of an uncaring master, only saved from the ground by the two soldiers holding her. They dragged her through the streets after their attempts to get her to stand failed. Windows and doors opened to see what was the cause of the waiting. Merchants and barkeeps paused what they were saying to gawk at the teenage witch being dragged through the streets, and they threw more insults into the mix and the occasional rock. Herc, traitor! Hellborn! Evren was crying. Her sorrow made manifest dripping to the cobblestones below. Her own failures, her dooming her family to ostracism, and her imminent and most likely painful death laid first chair in her mind. When the voices eventually died away, and the only sounds were the soldiers' footsteps and her subs, Evren knew that they had arrived at the garrison. The back of it, to be precise. That's where the executioner general was. Evren heard a wooden door creak open and began to cry louder. She heard the echoes of the soldiers' footsteps as they moved farther into the garrison. Eventually, they stopped, and Evren heard another door being opened. She'd been reduced to an unsteady breath and shaking. The soldiers threw Evren onto a soft mattress, and she heard the door shut. She tried to sit up, to move, but the chains and ropes prevented that. She tried hopelessly for a few moments, before she stopped trying altogether. Tears were flowing down her cheeks, a steady stream of despair, a large, warm finger brushed away some of her tears. Everett froze. She wasn't alone. Whoever was in the room wiped Everett's face and grabbed her chains, pulling her into a sitting position. Her heartbeat quickened. She began to try and think of a way to escape, but realized it was hopeless. She shivered. What were they going to do? She was scared. She felt the hands move around her back. Heard a small click and the chains began to be unwound. Then the ropes and the shackles and the cuffs. And as her hands were freed, she felt the gag being released. Slowly reaching up, she pulled off the blindfold. Expecting a dark, rusted dungeon full of unexplained torture machines, she instead found herself in a small, cozy room. It was well lit and a fire roared in the hearth. Books lined the walls. A desk on one side, and a table filled with every type of cake, pie, cookie, and tart Evren could ever imagine. More importantly, in the chair next to the bed Evren found herself sitting on was a man. He looked about fifty winters old, with a thick, bushy brown beard with speckles of grey. His face looked welcoming and fatherly, and as if he laughed hard at every joke he heard. He was wearing old armor, armor that had been used well according to the many dents. It was polished to a sheen, and looked as well worn as demanded. A large flathead sword leaned against the chair. What really stood out to Everen was his eyes. Brown eyes that looked capable of love unimagined were filled with pity and tinged with sorrow. This was the Executioner General. Hello, lass, my name is McCullen... But you can call me Nigel. He stuck out his hand as an act of friendship. An odd act if you're about to kill someone. What's your name, lassie? Everon, sir, she managed to say. Ah, don't you go and call me, sir. Just uh, call me Nigel. You know why you're here, Evelyn. Uh, I'm... Everon burst into tears again. Nigel moved onto the bed with her and gave her a hug that you would get from a comforting dad. There there. We can take this slowly. We have all day, Nigel muttered. They sat like that for a few minutes, with Everin bawling uncontrollably. When Everin had reached some stability, Nigel decided to ask something. How much do you know about the war? That's the 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 elves tried to kill us and we ran away. Everin snuffed. Right. So, I'm not going to hide anything from you. It's because the king said that he had the most beautiful wife. R- really? Th- that's why they tried to kill us. She dried some of her tears off her cheeks. Well, lassie, the elves never liked us to begin with. Something about our magic. Well, the elvish king said his wife was more beautiful and went to war. Here. Yeah, do you do you want something to drink? Everin nodded. Nigel went over to the table, covered in treats, and grabbed two cups and a pitcher. He poured the liquid from the pitcher into the cups and handed one to Everin as he sat on the bed. Everin sipped it cautiously, but was delighted at the taste. It was warm with cinnamon and nutmeg, and made her think of a warm hearth on a cold day. It's spiced wine, the queen's favorite. Anyway, so we went to war. The elves had been prepared and beat everything we threw at them. So we began to run as the elves killed everyone left behind. But somehow the elves always found us. After we lost most of our people, and it was with a few stragglers left that we found something out. Our strongest magical, Elias the Studious, discovered that the elves could detect and track our magic. And as you know, the normal human has no magic whereas magicals like you can access magic. By that time, Elias was the last magical we had. After discovering this, he gave the order to have every magical exiled or killed, and then proceeded to kill himself. He claimed it was for our safety. As we continued our flight, we noticed that the elves could no longer track us. With this... We fled through the mountains of Yvian, though most of us died and do it so. Nigel took a big gulp of his wine. As far as the elves know, humanity is dead. We want them to think that, because one day we will emerge from the mountains and kill them like they killed us. So we must stay hidden, and the horrible price is that the lives of our magicals. I'm sorry. They sat quietly before everyone broke the silence. "'What happens now?' Nigel shifted. "'Well, it's about two to noon, so we got a feast then, so you have two hours before.' Wh- "'When do I die?' Evren's voice was small. Nigel took a deep breath. "'Tonight, you will sleep in this room, and you won't wake up. It'll be painless, and you will be buried with the full honors of a great hero for your sacrifice.' Everett digested this for a moment. What do I do until then? Well, we can do whatever you want, as long as you don't go outside the palace. But what about my family? My brother? Your parents will receive a pension for the rest of their days. Your brother? He's in the guard, no? He is. He hopes to be a captain one day. We'll see about captain, but a lieutenant would be a good starting place. So, where do you want to go first? Nigel carried Evelyn's sleeping form back to the quarters he had first met her in. He would have to inject the poison slowly, so as to not wake her. She was smiling in her sleep, reminiscing over her last day. Her best day. From walking in the Royal Conservatory, reading in the Royal Library, to tea with the Queen, she'd been happy. That same Youthful joy that cut too deep with Nigel. He put it down on the bed and pulled the covers up over her. She turned in a sleep, muttering something incomprehensible. Nigel pulled out a small needle and slowly but carefully inserted it into her neck. She didn't wake, and she would never again, like countless others, like Nigel's Ed, into the most serene of Nigel cried. He cried every time. He cried during the killing and during the burial. He hurt with every magical, with every criminal. His job hurt, but he hurt so others wouldn't. That is the role of the executioner, General. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.